pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. come for Jolene to grow up. I'm not 12 years old anymore. No, you're not. She is about to unlock a secret. She's too young to understand. There's this boy here who is so incredibly gorgeous. I just want to die. She knows what she wants, but it's what she doesn't know that can hurt her. Jolene! Don't answer. When innocence... Have you ever done it? ...becomes seduction... Are you scared? When friendship... Don't worry, Jolene. I'll protect you. Becomes betrayal. I trusted you! When love becomes terror. Ah! Oh, scared now? I'm talking teenage psycho killer. Now she is trapped far from home. Where you can trust no one. Especially the one who loves you. Barrymore, far from home, growing up can be murder. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Brian Connolly. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andres Jones. Are you hot? We kick off Noir November 2022 with something a little different. It's an erotic thriller from 1989, directed by Mirt Avis and written by Tommy Lee Wallace. The film stars Drew Barrymore as Jolene Cox, who, along with her father, Charlie, played by Matt Frewer, are stranded in a shitty little trailer park in Nevada on their way back to California. She's on the edge of 14 years old and encounters a whole mess of interesting characters and character actors. There's Susan Tyrell, who runs the trailer park, Dick Miller as the local lawman, Richard Mazur as a burnt-out mechanic, Anthony Rapp as a squirrely little guy named Pinky, and there's some guy named Andres Jones who menaces Jolene and may be murdering people around the park. I have to say that I don't tend to have one of the main cast of a film on an episode, so this kind of throws the whole where-did-you-hear-about-this-movie question right out the window. But before I fumble through that, let me just go ahead and warn people that we will be spoiling the film. So if you haven't seen Far From Home, track it down and come on back after you have. We will still be here. So, Andres, where were you in your career when you were cast in Far From Home? Well, I thought I was at the beginning of it. <laughs> I was actually acting in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, uh, when I got this role. And I literally had to leave looping session for that film to catch the flight for this one, which angered some of our Nightmare on Elm Street producers. And if you want to hear stories about that, you can check out the World is Wrong episode we did about Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child with Lisa Wilcox. So that led into a whole other controversy. But what I remember is that when I got the film, I approached it 
like I approached my podcast. I started to do a bunch of research. So I watched Firestarter and Cat's Eye to catch up with Drew Barrymore. I watched Bad and Fat City to catch up with Susan Terrell. And I'm pretty sure I watched Adventures in Babysitting to check out Anthony Rapp. And I that was pretty close to just having come out. So maybe I saw that afterwards. But then all of a sudden, I found myself in Gerlach, Nevada, which is a tiny, I mean, at the time was a really, really tiny town. Since then, the year after we filmed it, they started doing Burning Man right out on the edge of Gerlach on those salt flats where we shot the film. So I'm sure it's grown. It's grown since then. But at the time, it was a hotel, a bar and diner and a gas station. And they were all owned by the same guy, this guy, Leon. And people in the town had to drive 20 minutes to go get their mail. So that's to give you a sense of how small it was. We built it up to look as big as it does as a small, tiny little town just for the film. When I got the role, I was 19. And we got to this little town. And I realized very quickly that within a week, everyone in town knew all of us. And we were all eating at the diner. And I just started telling people, it's going to be my 21st birthday in August because my birthday was coming up. And I was only 19, my 20th birthday. But if everyone in the town was invited to my 21st birthday at the local bar, then I knew they wouldn't card me after. So I got to be 21 for like an extra two or three weeks in at the end of August before leaving. That's where I was when I got the movie Far From Home. And Brian, had you seen this before you knew Andres? I only watched this for the first time this week. It's funny because I feel like I've seen everything else he's done. Pretty sure. Pretty seen or most of them. And he has the poster for this in his house. So there's like the, whenever you like walk to the bathroom, you see him embracing Drew Barrymore from behind. And it's kind of, you know, this erotic, creepy looking thriller. Definitely wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be like. And it was. it's also kind of strange to see someone you know be so menacing in a way, a movie. <laughs> I had never heard of this film until, Andres, you brought it up. And this is you know your guys' Patreon pick, I should say. So if folks out there want to pick something on Patreon, just go on in there. I think you have to be at the $20 level and above. And yeah, these guys say podcasts, so I invite them on and let's talk about this stuff. So not everybody gets invited on to talk about their Patreon pick, but you guys definitely did. And when you brought up Far From Home, I was just like, oh yeah, I love that movie with Anna Paquin and the geese and Jeff Daniels. And oh, this will be great. I just watched that recently. You know, we were talking about Never Cry Wolf and Carol Bat. You know, so I was all set for it and then no no i looked up your filmography and i was like oh okay what is this like I, I, this was not on my radar whatsoever which is always a bad thing because you would think that people would know about all these movies that come out and this came out in 1989 same week as batman oh boy that might be why we haven't heard of it <laughs> But this was also a great time for like your hot singles at Blockbuster, just having, you know, and I said erotic thriller in the beginning, and I was very much debating, is this an erotic thriller? Because there's one sex scene. You guys aren't in it. It looks like a couple body doubles. I don't even know who the people are. That's the porn star, Terry Weigel. And I don't know who the guy was. Do we ever see them outside of the trailer? No. Okay. All right. Because it just feels kind of like... 
Well, it is. It's an insert shot of these two people having sex, Drew Barrymore on one side of the trailer, and then you on the other, menacing like hell. You're you're channeling all that Johnny Depp, Skeet Ulrich angst into your performance. I love it. Very menacing, very hot at the same time. And your guys' eyes meet, and that's it for the sex. But I'm just like, well, yeah, this does kind of fit into that erotic thriller mode, but I might be disappointed if I were some sort of old pervert trying to rent this to see Drew Barrymore in the buff because and then when she says oh I'm about to turn 14 yeah if you're an old pervert I think there's plenty in this film for you well I am an old pervert so I definitely enjoyed this film I didn't know if I was going to or not but man the cast in this movie is fucking fantastic I was so amazed at the cast that I got to work with everyone most people haven't heard of this movie, but with such a stellar cast, like when you look at the IMDb page, it's like all but maybe two people are people you've heard of that are amazing, which is rare, which is rare for any movie, <laughs> even the ones we've heard. And of. I think I'm one of those two people. So, Andres, I had a question. Was Jennifer Tilly already like known in 89? She was Meg Tilly's sister. That's all we knew her as. I love the way that this story unfolds. You know, I am throwing this in Noir Vember because it is a thriller. You don't know who's killing these people. Also, you have Jolene basically is the investigator and she even gets a voiceover, which is kind of neat. She gets a voiceover courtesy mostly from her diary entries. We get to hear how she's on this trip with her dad and she's just about to turn 14. And it's, you know, I want to get back to L.A. before I turn 14. But no, they get stuck out in the pretty much middle of nowhere. This whole thing, there's a gas crisis going on. There's no gas in one town. They end up going 36 more miles. They get to another town. By that time, they're pushing the vehicle, and there's no gas there either. But there is Richard Maser, which is fantastic. I love that guy. And he's great. This is not a, not a, a traditional Richard Maser role. And it was so much fun to watch him get into this character because he had a blast. He feels like a character that would have been played by like Howard Hessman. But instead, it's him, you know, like usually Richard Misser is like warm dad or like the like in License to Drive, whatever. He's like the concerned. He's very dadly. But have him play kind of this like shell shocked from the 60s, sort of not quite Dennis Hopper sort of character was really interesting, I thought. For me, he's always the college admissions guy from Risky Business. He was in one, it was a TV movie, and I can't remember who the, the girl was, but it was basically, he was this real menacing piece of shit, basically like a pedophile. And that's where I knew him from for the longest time. Whenever he would show up in things for quite a few years, I'd be like, oh, it's that guy. Fallen Angel is the name of the movie from 1981. That's Dana Hill as our main character. And yeah, Richard Mazur is just, oh boy, he is big time perv trying to take pictures of little Dana Hill when she's just a teenager. Jennifer, right? You know, you don't look like a Jennifer to me. You got a nickname? My dad called me Pumpkin. Well, we don't want anybody taking your dad's place. Let me see. Angel. You look like an angel to me. How's that? I don't know. Well, if you don't know, I do. Angel, it is. 
But Matt Frewer, I freaking love Matt Frewer, and he brings such great dad energy to this. And especially, I mean, Drew Barrymore, a lot of times, she's kind of a little shit in this movie. Not too obnoxious, thank goodness. But Frewer, you can tell, really cares about this daughter character and really exudes, like you said, this very patriarchal, very nice guy kind of thing. And I'm like, he's trying his best. We don't really hear why he and his wife are split up, but you know he's trying his best and just wants to do right by Jolene. I'm like, yeah, go for it, man. You're you're doing a good job. Though he does definitely want to get it wet when he starts to meet Karen Austin. Like you would want to. Well, and that that's to give you some sense. So at the time, Karen Austin was a much bigger deal than Jennifer Tilly for that for that brief moment. And also this is Matt Frewer right out of Max Hedrum. Uh it was maybe like the year a year after Max Hedrum. So it's him trying to play, see if he can work his way into this sort of not quite leading man kind of role, but not the weirdo roles that he has sort of found his his niche in. But what I want to say about working with him is he was the funniest person I've ever met. Maybe I was just younger then and maybe, I, you know, but I just I was laughing constantly. I mean, get ready to get jealous. I spent hours because we had so much downtime. Just hours sitting in a diner with him and Dick Miller and Jennifer Tilly and Karen Austin just drinking coffee and eating chicken fried steak and laughing our fucking asses off. That guy is the funniest person, the greatest improviser I've ever met. Such a great guy. Yeah, I used to watch him on his Max Headroom appearances, especially when he was on the movie channel. To see him in anything ever was always so much fun. And especially I'm like, oh, that's the guy that played Max Hedrum. Because in the makeup and stuff, he was almost unrecognizable. But since I brought up Dick Miller, maybe we should talk about about him and being in this. because He's kind of like one of the worst police officers ever. Especially that he doesn't block off the dead body in the little mini mart that they find themselves in. Which he's desperately trying to get a soda pop of some sort and goes in and basically almost slips on the blood of this dead body. I was shocked to see him play the sheriff because I feel like he would be the gas station attendant. Like if this was any other movie, Dick Miller, to see him with such authority is kind of weird. Usually he's more like the guy who's in the muck being the everyman and to have him be like the main authority of this little town is, is, is was very uh, through me. I thought that maybe he was the killer at some point. I was like, maybe there's a reason why he's the cop. Maybe Dick Miller is the killer. I like how it rhymes, too. So I didn't just suggest this because I want to talk about a movie I was in. Although, why not? When you're in a movie, you can, you'll can you never see it. There's no, I'll never be able to see this movie. I've had people talk to me about it before who really like it. Strangely, I've met several women who've told me they used to masturbate to this film. Wrap your mind around around women's sexuality and try and figure that one out. And not all women, but these three women who did not know each other from totally different times and different places. But but I really am curious because, you know, Mike, I'm a huge fan of your show. I love your your point of view on things. Brian, I know you really well. And mostly I'm just I'm so curious to get your impressions of this film because I, I respect your I respect you both. And I hope that maybe through this, I can get a sense of what it is actually like to see this film. Like, I'm really surprised to hear the things you're saying. Like, first of all, that you thought it was good. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me. Also, this conjecture about Dick Miller. So please give me more. Give me more of this. 
I was thrown quite a bit. Are you driving that remote control car? Are you supposed to be driving that remote control car that's hitting Drew Barrymore? Because we get that car and then we get your introduction. And for the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, he's the guy that's driving this. And then when I rewatch it, and I do have to say that this movie gets a lot better on a rewatch after you know what the twist is. And then it's like, well, maybe that actually wasn't him at all driving that car. That could be somebody completely else. And I think that it is. I think so, too. I think that it's Anthony Rapp. I think he's the one driving that remote control car. And he's hiding. He's hiding behind something. And and he probably drove away and he ran away because he's the shy weirdo who would try to get someone's attention from a real control car. Whereas Jimmy is not afraid to walk right up to Drew Barrymore and be like, you and me, we're going to do it. He doesn't need a a remote control car to get her attention. That's kid stuff. The only thing I really remember from working with Tommy Lee Wallace is before that scene, he pulled me aside and he was like, I want you to be Jim Morrison. (laughs) My best. I'll do my best, sir. (laughs) I read the script last night and it is interesting. And we'll hear from Tommy later on in the show, but it's very interesting how the movie is very similar to the script, but it feels like, how can I put this? Like, the connective tissue isn't necessarily there sometimes. So there are these questions like that I'm asking. I mean, this is a good question here because it's, it's actually pretty good because it's like, well, I think it's him. No, it's actually this other guy. And like, I, my opinion changes as I watch it a second time. But then reading the script last night, I was like, oh no, there's actually a little bit more in here. There's a little bit more in here. And just like, there's little connectors that go through things. So like, Anthony Rapp has this knife later on, and then they talk about how the knife was stolen from this place, and there's the gun, and how the gun was used on the dead body that's in the Mini Mart, and then you get to find out, oh, that was this guy's gun. He got shot with his own gun. So there's like all these little pieces in there, and I'm just like, oh, okay, this would have it's like it would have clarified things more, but at the same time, there are they are things that necessarily need clarification. They are things that I can really see why they're on the cutting room floor. You talked with Mirit too, right? I did, yes. I'm so curious to hear I'm hear what both of them have to say about this film after all these years. So yeah, we get this dead body pretty much right off the bat, and then it's a matter of like Hovis. That's like, that's his name. What about Farrell Hovis? Did he deserve it? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you were dropping the actor's name. That is one of my favorite character names. I love it. Farrell Hovis. Good job, Tommy Lee. Good job. And that really sets us up to this whole mystery. And from there, we just get this whole thing of introducing characters, characters getting bumped off. And I mean, one of the first murders we actually get to see is Susan Tyrell when she gets killed. Susan Tyrell. I mean, we've talked on this show so many times about how much we love Susan Tyrell. And she is fucking unhinged in this movie. Totally. And I love that she shot almost the entire time with a wide-angle lens that just makes everything distorted. Like, this is almost fisheye we're talking here. Everything is distorted. There's way too much room inside of her trailer with this lens that makes it look like it's huge. But it also just distorts her and makes her performance even bigger. Like, if you couldn't think that Susan Tyrell could get bigger, she's bigger in this in this movie. She is just unhinged. I love it. Where's the coupon? There's no coupon. Just shut up and eat it! 
you love dice. Yum. Disodium inosinate pyridoxine hydrochloride. These are poison. Poison? Poison. Mommy? They're good. They're good. You little bitch! Ooh, Mommy said a bad word. Get out of here, junk. Get out. Get the fuck in here, you little witch! Get over here. Sit down! I don't know if she was just doing it for the role or if it's like that. This is just how she how she rolled. But it, it'll help you to feel that character is that she loved eating pickled eggs out of the jar at the bar. And I always associate that character, not Susan, because I got to know her well after and we, we stayed friends and she was a, she's just a, a classy lady who was wild. But on at the time, just the vibe of pickled eggs and that character it's that's all all i think of when i think about her in that in that role just like chewing on a pickled egg ah, always threatening to run away never does like she's wc fields or something i love it the slick back blonde hair that she has the tattoo on her back that she's got the it's almost like she's always in a slip she never wears like proper clothes until she finally gets out of her clothes and then somebody could it be you jimmy could jimmy be murdering his own mother is that a bridge too far i don't know i wouldn't put it past this kid he's kind of a a bad seed jimmy walked on down the hall her death scene is really was really shocking to me because I just this is the first time I saw this is movie. Is that a pun? <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. <laughs> Cuz I didn't know this was going to like again, I didn't know anything about this movie, so I didn't know it was going to be this kind of movie. Like going into it I thought oh this is going to be just some blossoming romance sort of thing, but then when she gets murdered and it you know it's just like oh wait, what is wait, what is this movie? <laughs> it really threw me for a loop. That part, because I wasn't expecting her to leave the movie so quickly. And then I was like, wait, is this a murdery movie? Oh, this is a thriller. I didn't realize it was a thriller until that point. Like, even with the dead body and the guest in the mini mart thing or gas station, that was like, oh, maybe this is just adding to the character how this town is weird. But then once she gets killed in her bathtub, then it just totally threw me off. And then I really love that. She then stays in that tub for days. Yes. <laughs> yes. Nobody notices. In you think in a town of only like ten people, someone would notice one of those ten people being gone for a day. Well, that was my question too, Andres. Was did they build the trailer park there, or was that pre-existing? No, they built the trailer truck. Trailer. That's what I'm saying. They built. They they put in that pool. They put in the trailer park. Yeah. Gas station, hotel, bar, restaurant. And then a couple of houses like around the area. But that was it. Well, that set the abandoned condos. That must have been there. <laughs> I can't give you a clear answer. I wasn't there for the set building. This is what they told us when we got when we got there. They're like, man, we had to build this place up just to make it look small. Those condos, though, are huge. That has to be like a real thing. It reminded me of the set in, was it Wild? And, and the, the giant empty, like maybe oh, it was yeah, going to be a hotel. Or that, something? Was a, that was away from Gerlach. And that, that wasn't a hotel. It was just like a big abandoned cement structure. I think it was like ruins, basically. I wonder if it's still there. I bet it, like parts of it are still there. That reminded me of the ruins in, was it Wild Orchid? The Mickey Rourke movie where they go off into that weird, like empty looking like it should have been a hotel, but it isn't sort of thing. 
That is a good find, whoever found that for this movie. I kept looking at the graffiti that was in there and trying to see if it was put there for the movie or if it was just there beforehand, you know. I love Anthony Rapp, who we get introduced to Pinky pretty right off. And then when we find that these abandoned, I call them abandoned condos, it was supposed to be some sort of like big project, luxury apartment type of thing that just never happened. And I like how they've got the sign out front, you know, like, you know, coming soon. But his layer with all of the TV sets, I don't know where he got all these TV sets. I don't know where he's getting the electricity for all these TV sets, but it's just a really cool place. And I like that it kind of reflects what's going on inside of his mind, because we don't know much about Pinky throughout the entire thing for good reason. But to see all those TV sets and just all the little gizmos and gadgets and stuff that he has collected all throughout that room, it's like, okay, this is really giving me some good insight here. He hadn't come out at the time he had made this film, but he was on the verge and there's, he really brought that to this character. I feel like there's this sexual confusion or maybe not like in the character, the sexual confusion that he's feeling. I feel like Anthony was able to put that, put his own experience into that. And it's, I feel like the time, the, that role, and maybe, maybe this is the way it is just with everything, but the time that role seemed, he seemed sort of, I didn't see that. I, that was blind to that aspect of his life or that character. And looking back on it, it actually, I think it makes it much richer. And also, interestingly, he ended up after that film, he ended up going and he lived with Susan for like a month or two in L.A. And I know they became very, very close friends. And I know she was a played a big part in helping him to figure out how to move into his adult self as as who he is. So. It really adds to the character. I think the way, whether he was playing it intentionally or not, it does feel very much like he's torn between Jimmy and Jolene. Nice also that they have these J names, both of them. And he's trying to figure out what he wants to do, and he doesn't really know. And then it's also nice because, I mean, he's frankly, he's very much a Norman Bates character, especially when we find that he's kept his mother or relative, but I think it's his mother preserved inside of the apartment. I mean, it's not the basement like we have in in the Bates house, but it's very similar the way that this happens and the way that when Richard Mazur comes in as Puckett, I think his name is, when he comes in and discovers this, I mean, it feels very Vera Miles discovering the body and there's no mail to protect him from getting stabbed by Anthony Rapp, though apparently it's not that good of a stabbing because he, he seems to be okay by the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, shockingly so. Yeah, it's a surprise. Usually an ice pick through the back, that's not a good thing. So I'm, as we're going through all these actors, I'm curious, Andras, like what Drew Barrymore was like at this time, because this is sort of a really interesting spot in her career because like she has she kind of hadn't made a hit in a few years even though she was still a kid like cat's eye was 85 five star was 84 and then we don't really get another big thing with her until poison ivy in 92 and so this is like kind of in the middle and this was you know maybe right after she was like the 13 year old partying at studio 54 and all this like her crazy you know, this is a person who became sober when they turned 16 or once they became an adult, became sober. So was she like 
Where, where, like, what is, what was she like? They got her out of rehab to make this film. So this was her first sober film. Her mom, Jade Barrymore, was on the set. Well, I can only speak from my own experience. It was a little, it was weird uh, because she's 14 and she's so much more sophisticated than I am. I'm a kid who's moved out to Hollywood two years before he's in his second movie. She just got out of rehab and has been in major, has been in movies her whole life, hanging out with famous people. So on the one hand, she was much more mature and much more sophisticated than me, but she was still a 14 year old kid that sort of, it would be a little bit disconcerting because sometimes you'd be treating her like she was an adult and then she'd say something you'd be like, Oh no, she's a kid making it even more confusing for me was that she had a huge crush on me. This is the, the, the thing. You, the, the role you get cast in depend, determines how people on the set treat you. Maybe it's different if you're famous, but when I played a nerd, the, the craft services guy will be making fun of me. Jimmy, women on the set were interested in me. And I was always like a good guy. Like, no, you're you're a kid, and I'm a big 19-year-old man. I can't, you know, I we, can, we can't have anything to do with each other. But she was, and she, you know, it was it was that push and pull thing. And at the same time, also, her mom was also kind of like there was like some weird competition going on between the two of them uh, that I found myself weirdly in the middle of, and always sort of having to like it was like you, Brian, you're a fan of sort of Blake Edwards-y kind of sex comedies, like a guy who's trying to avoid all of this stuff and doesn't really know. Again, she was much more sophisticated than I was. And I was sort of a kid who was cast in a role that made my made me the the center of a lot of small town on set stuff that I didn't really know how to navigate, to be totally honest. And then and then as an actor, it was great working with her. Me and her and Anthony, it was like being at summer camp for me as a kid. You know, it's just like. We were a bunch of kids on the set running around, you know, trying to sneak beers and like she wasn't. Uh, I guess Anthony wasn't. I guess that was just me. <laughs> I was a I was a good influence when it came to being a nice guy around the sexual politics, but I was a bad influence when it came to the drinking. I didn't realize at first when I was watching this because she's just like, oh, yeah, I'm about to turn 14. And you just said, yeah, she's 14. She really is 14. This is not. A woman of 18 pretending to be younger, this is her actual age. And I totally forgot about that. Because, yeah, like, to your point, Brian, like, in two years, she's doing Poison Ivy. I think in three years, she's doing Gun Crazy and the Amy Fisher story. I mean, I'm I'm super old, so I made a reference to Amy Fisher the other day, and nobody that I work with understood that. You know, they, they don't understand any of those, like, early – Real tabloidy type stories of things. So if I made a Joey Buttafuoco joke, she just they wouldn't get it. You know, they just think I was speaking Italian. But yeah, she's fourteen here, and she is being shot so sexually. Her ass is the star of this movie. Her breasts are not on display, but everything is just like, hey, look at this child basically and how sexual she is and and now that i know that she really was 14 it's just like oh that's kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit but it makes the scene of your attempted rape of her even worse 
because yeah, to your point, she's, you guys start off, you know, there's this whole like chemistry thing. You're, you know, doing that whole bad boy looking under the bangs that are kind of thing. Like, okay, good. Pretty sure you guys are going to end up as a couple. You start making out. And next thing I know, Jimmy Reed is starting to rape this girl. I'm like, what the fuck, man? Slow your roll. And it becomes really violent really fast. So let me tell you what how that, that shooting day went. So first of all, those waters, those are hot springs. Those are not cold waters that we're going to. It was nice. My understanding is that nobody can get to those hot springs anymore. They, you know, because if they made them available, the people who come to Burning Man would overrun it. So when you watch that film and you think, oh, they're jumping in the cold water. No, that's hot, sulfury water. Uh, what I remember from that day, I have to say, I think I'm more scarred by that scene than Drew could ever be. Again, she's many more experiences than me before I got to that. But on that day, everyone came up to me and was like, the producer, the director, and you got to be gentle with Drew. This is her first kiss. This is Drew's first on-screen kiss. Okay, I don't really think of this as, didn't prepare for this as a kiss scene. This is a rape scene. This is not someone's first kiss. She's going to have, I hope that this character has a future first kiss. That's not this. There was this whole thing of trying to play that scene gently and also have it be as, have it be what it really is. And then it also, it ends on sort of a comic note because then Pinky shows up and kicks me in the balls. And is it he who kicks me in the balls or is it Drew? No, it's Drew. I think she does. Yeah. Which is good. Um, that's that's the right end to that scene. But it's just for me. It, I will. My mind goes back there semi regularly of just like that wasn't a first kiss. Goddamn, that was a rape scene. And trying to play it, and I think probably watching it, it's weird because I didn't play it. I didn't play it like Jim Morrison. I played it like a kid who's like, I guess I have to rape somebody now. <laughs> like I don't want to. In my mind, the way I figured it was like. Okay, he just, the way I had to play it, and I don't really like this, was it just moves fast, and then he's, and he thinks we're going, and then, so it's more like, and I think I remember thinking, she's, we talked about, she gives me the first kiss, that it's her, she kisses me the first, and then I'm like, okay, we're good to go, let's do this, and that's when it gets to, it gets to be too much, but I, I feel like the brutality it should have been, if it was going to be a rape scene, it should have been more brutal. If it was going to be a romantic scene, it should have been romantic. But the middle ground has always bugged me. Well, and then Jimmy goes from zero to 60. He's now psycho killer, chasing after Pinky and Jolene and just a madman just coming after. And then it's very obvious to everybody watching this movie. Oh, of course, Jimmy's the killer. This makes total sense because this guy is flipping the fuck out. So I do like that bait and switch quite a bit. Well, you know, someone kicks you in the balls. Kill crazy rampage. Yeah. Got to go over to Pinky's little place and just smash, smash up his TVs. All the TVs. That all was the fun. TVs. That was. Oh, I bet it was. <laughs> was that you the full time? I was worried about you because of the electricity. Yeah. No, that was me. Wow. Okay. I wasn't sure if you had a, a stunt person for a couple of those shots. I think they had things on the back of the TVs that were exploding. So the TVs weren't actually, when I hit them, I don't think they were actually on. Because these were old cathode ray things. And I know that even turned off, those can be dangerous sometimes. Well, back then they didn't care too much about actors. 
some of the deaths that are in this movie, because it's not necessarily a slasher film, but there's a lot of creative deaths in this movie, too, because we've got, you know, well, the first one, basically the guy got his head blown off, but then we see Susan Tyrell get the fan and she becomes electrocuted. We get poor Jennifer Tilly in the car and they finally have gotten gas. There's this whole thing of them going and siphoning gas and them crossing the salt flats and siphoning all this gas by mouth, which I can't even imagine how sick they would have been in real life had they had to do that for all of these vehicles getting, what was it, like 11 gallons of gas? And I do appreciate that Matt Frewer's car takes, you know, it's this big old boat. And yeah, I'm going to get like five miles from here (laughs) if we take this. Let's put all the gas in your rabbit and we'll be okay. But poor Jennifer Tilly in this car. And then we have the return of that remote control truck that just comes along. And I do really appreciate that it's birthday candles on this truck that is going to ignite this car because it's Jolene's birthday. And what a shitty birthday to have, man. I miss remote control cars in movies. I feel like that's not a thing kids do anymore, but I feel like in the 80s, there was a lot of like, that was like, maybe it was a newer thing when you didn't have it. Cause the old ones had it where it was connected to the wire, but then you had wireless remote control. Like there's that great chase scene in the Deadpool where it's uh, Clint Eastwood in the remote controlled car. So I, I wish that there was more menacing remote control cars. They were the original drones. <laughs> they were. But they looked like cool little monster trucks, you know? So, Well, they kind of had the best of both worlds with the the runaway with Gene Simmons, because he had all the that army of little robots, and they were basically like drone remote control cars, basically, especially when they're chasing Tom Selleck down the freeway. That's a great scene. I have to say, Merritt does a great job of just ramping up the tension and just keeping us guessing through this entire thing. Once we start to get to know Pinky a little bit more, things do start to make sense. But then when we get to see what Pinky is really like, feels appropriate. It feels like the right level of crazy. I do appreciate his whole thing about his uh, dad who's dead and the whole death from above patch that he has. And then especially because that plays out humorously a few times when he reaches down and slits Dick Miller's throat when Dick Miller finally knows that he's the bad guy. He and Matt Frewer are looking for him. And then when he falls from a great height, that's also a nice little death from above. Okay, I get it. Smart. There's, there are smart things in this movie. This is not just like a trashy type of movie. You know, I'm look. I'm trying to look on Mirth's IMDb. I know he did a ton of music videos. Is this his only feature film? He did one more, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. I want to say it was like it was a music related film, and I want to say Ashley Simpson was in it. Undiscovered is the name of it. He's a really interesting director, and I'm. For me, what's interesting is his visual sense. But it's really, as I said, I've never seen this film, even though I've seen it many times. So it's really interesting to me to hear your appreciation of his uh, skills as a director of suspense. And it just makes me wish that as you're talking about it, it's like, God, I, I, I want to go watch a Mir Davis film. <laughs> um, but the only one we have is Undisclosed. He was a music video guy, right? He did a bunch of the U2. Like, was he doing like the Joshua Tree? Some of the videos Even for that? Earlier, he did the music video in 19. 19- he did a, his first thing is doing I Will Follow for them in 1980. 
So we did that, then Gloria, a celebration, two hearts beat of one as one and New Year's Day in 83, and for the unforgettable fire. And then, yeah, and then he's then he did all the at the time when we were doing this, it was right after Joshua Tree, and he had just done videos for With or Without You, Where the Streets Have No Name, and Bruce Springsteen's Brilliant Disguise and Tunnel of Love. So he was just like the like making the biggest music videos in the world. This movie feels like those videos or the way those songs sound, like that kind of empty, kind of mysterious in the desert sort of, I feel like maybe that's how we got this movie. It was from doing all that Joshua Tree stuff. Did he do this instead of doing Rattle and Hum? Because he, why wasn't he invited to direct the U2 movie? Why was it somebody else? <laughs> Phil Juanu, the director of well, a film we covered on the World is Wrong podcast, State of Grace. And I feel like State of Grace wouldn't have happened if it hadn't the way it happened because it's so Irish, if it hadn't been for his association with you 2 So I think it worked out okay. There's also something about this movie that reminds me of kind of the 80s was really into like these people kind of in the desert. I don't know if it's because we were so about like Reagan and being in the big city and making money in Wall Street that we had to have this art out in the desert. But this feels very much like a post Paris, Texas sort of feeling just sort of some of the shots or like Red rock west this is that kind of noir film where it's like the red rock west or u-turn or even going all the way back to like bad day of black rock like the person who's like stuck in the middle of nowhere like literally in the middle of nowhere and all the weirdos they have to deal with in the town and all they want to do is like leave or get gas and, and they just can't they're just stuck <laughs> or a more polite hills have eyes maybe this kind of plot is always very unnerving to me just because like I live in Texas and there's a lot of those towns you drive through and you always wonder like if my car breaks down here or between here and there, what do I do? Who's going to help me? What What's going to happen? <laughs> like even the bigger towns like that, like Marfa still has like nothing really there. Like I stayed in Marfa for a few days and it was hard just to find food to eat. And this is like a popular, like this the big art town. And I had to literally edit a gas station, like crappy gas station food for days because there would be a restaurant and someone would explain where it was. And then I couldn't find it. And I was just like in this town in the middle of the desert with nothing to eat but like terrible gas station tacos. They're like, we're going to give this Yankee some trouble. As, as you said that, I realized the owner of all those places was not Leon. I'm sorry. His name was Bruno. I hope you oh, wow. Why I would have got those those wrong. But yes, it was Bruno, Bruno's place. Quite, quite the baron in that town, just owning everything, getting ev getting everybody's money. He was on the verge of just, he was already controlling that town. But when Burning Man moved in, I just have to think that guy just made so much money off of like people whose cars broke down or who were hung, like $5 bottles of water. The park city of the desert, you know. $20 for a slice of pizza. <laughs> was Susan Tyrell, was her character based off of Bruno? <laughs> She's just like, yeah, $2 to use my phone, but I'm calling collect. $2 to use the phone, dollar for these drinks. Actually, you know what? I, you might have been inspired by Bruno. She was so, she was just soaking everything up. I really do, like, I do feel like she was eating those pickled eggs just to, like, gross me out and, like, create, like, because I think she could tell I liked her too much. And she was like, no, you're, you're supposed to hate me here. And she would be like the best aunt in the world. You know, Aunt Susan, who just comes over and is just like, ah, 
what the fuck's going on over here? Yeah, no, you're totally right about the whole desert thing. And you are going to have your minds blown, perhaps, when you hear this interview with Tommy Lee Wallace and hear how this went from almost a post-apocalyptic story of bands of kids roaming the deserts as like marauders. I mean, we're talking like Mad Max 3 type of stuff going on here. And then it ends up being this. And I'm just like, how did it get from this? And he, he explains it pretty well, but... Yeah, you were almost in like a sci-fi film. I'm curious, did either Mirt or Tommy Lee talk about the producer, Donald Borchers? A little bit. Tommy talks a little bit about him and definitely talks about how that he was pretty sad that he didn't get to direct this. And it sounds like from what you're saying, maybe he was kind of directing some things, at least telling you to, you know, Jim Morrison it up here. Yeah, he definitely had a, he got to, he wasn't on the set for the whole time, but he was on this, by the time he was on the set. And I'm, I've always been the guy who seeks out the writers, which is maybe one, another one of the reasons my career has not flourished the way the people who gravitate to producers or directors <laughs> do, or agents. No, I'm always interested in, in hanging out with the writers and the character actors on the set. But Don Porchers is a really, really interesting character. He, he produced Crimes of Passion. More germane to this conversation is that he produced Two Moon Junction. I feel like that had, like he wanted this to, I feel like this was packaged to be another Two Moon Junction. Uh, sort of a sexy coming of age girl on her own kind of story. I have actually, to be honest, I haven't even seen Two Moon Junction. Have you? I've seen Two Moon Junction just because I was a huge Sherilyn Fenn fan. I have to say Far From Home is a much better motion yeah, picture. Yes, <laughs> it's not good. I didn't realize that was Terry Weigel. First naked lady I ever saw on the internet. When I first got the internet, when I was 13, and we had the you know dial up and it took forever. That was like the first, when I was just trying to type, when I was just typing in words like boob or whatever, that was the first, her naked was the first person on the, on the information superhighway in my life. So when you brought up the browser was, did you look at the browser and then look beyond the browser and there was some creepy girl looking at you watching the browser? One thing that is interesting is Connie Sawyer plays the, the, the lady in the desert. And that was originally going to be Anne Magnuson. And she died right before we started shooting. And so I didn't get to work with Throw Mama from the Train. Ann Ramsey. It was Ann Ramsey. It would be wild if it was Ann Magnuson. That would be, be kind of a weird role for her. Ann Ramsey. Thank you. Thank you. I had kind of a crush on Ann Magnuson from her role in Lay of the Right Worm, another Ken Russell film. So I had kind of a crush on Ann Ramsey from uh, Throw Mama from the Train. Yeah, I preferred her look in Goonies, but especially her look in, what was that, Deadly Friend, when she gets yeah, her head exploded by a basketball. So I do really like how this movie ends with basically the family unit now. We've got Matt Furrer, we've got Drew Barrymore, and then Karen Austin. Now we have mom, dad, and girl going off back to LA, back to safety. It's kind of nice that we end that way. And do you notice what else? On the way out, Jimmy's leaving town. Jimmy's walking out of town. Maybe to go to L.A. for a sequel. Well, and Jimmy didn't survive that script that I read. He dies. He, you, Your character got ganked by Pinky. So there is no Jimmy hitchhiking by the crossroads kind of thing, waiting for a truck to slow down at that railroad track. 
You dodged the bullet, my friend. That's not usually the way it works. Like, see, and they usually kill me off. It's you. I'm, my character is written to survive, and they're like, "Eh, let's kill him in the middle of the movie." Check out Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four. Get the sequel farther from home. Farther or further from home. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a whole slew of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from director Merritt Avis. After that, screenwriter Tom Lee Wallace. Then we'll hear from cinematographer Paul Elliott. And last but certainly not least, producer Donald P. Borchers. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. All right, welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from director Mert Avis. I know you've done, well, hundreds of music videos or over 100 music videos. How did you get involved with that and how did you meet up with you two? Well, I was living in Holland and I knew a band called Supply, Demand and Curve that were kind of a jazz fusion band pretty good band and uh, i just thought that this was you know before music videos really existed i made a video for them just for fun not not to be released anywhere and the bass player in that band was a guy called brian masterson and he and i and a couple of other people ended up building a music studio in dublin and that became the sort of recording home for you too once they got a record deal so i used to hang around i'd be we also, you know, Jim Butler, another engineer, and I built some video facilities upstairs from the studio. So while you two were recording, they'd come up and hang around looking at video, seeing what we were doing. So I got to know them. You know, the recording process is a pretty long, drawn out, tedious process. So um, for entertainment, they'd come and hang out with us. So got to know them. And we'd look, we'd talk about videos and show you know look at old movies of jerry Lee lewis or the beatles or that was sort of the beginning of music videos anyway so bono he's a real student of performance like he's watched every performer that ever was you know little richard james brown you know, he knows them all backwards he, he knows their shoe sizes you know he's a he's a made us he's a student of performance you know so that was, I became part of that process. And when they had a video to shoot, I think they had 10 grand or something. I was the obvious person to do it because I was the person who knew about videos. So one thing led to another and we made videos and they worked out okay. You know, videos, there wasn't really a roadmap then. You didn't really, you know, we were inventing an art form, essentially. You didn't really know what a music video was. That You just knew it had to be, challenging and entertaining and break some rules and make some rules and you know and if it worked it worked and if it didn't work you were history so that was the way it was you were doing this before mtv even started i want to say your first videos were 1980 and mtv didn't start until august 81 no for sure myself and a couple of other basically 
English, you know, directors in England. I think most of them were. I mean, there were maybe five or six directors who really, if you look back at it, basically invented a new art form. That's the way I look at it. So, you know, I was very lucky, basically. And I proved to be good enough at it to survive. And then you get struck by lightning. You make you, you know, you hook up with it. Most, most directors, if you look at their careers, they would have hooked up with some band and had a hit of some kind, you know. So it's very hit driven. You have to be good, but you also have to have a hit. I mean, it's amazing to me to look at just how different the videos are that you've done over the years. There's not necessarily like, oh, yeah, this has to be you doing this. I mean, even to look at like, with or without you and where the streets have no name two completely different approaches to making a video. And it's the same guy behind the camera and it's the same four guys in front of the camera. That can be a good thing and a bad thing. I think, I mean, I always try and serve the song, not, you know, like you, there's two ways of approaching a video. You can say I'm a genius and I've got all these cinematic ideas and your song is the soundtrack for my movie. That's one way of doing it, and I've done that a couple of times. But more often, I think it's better to see what your emotional and creative response to the song is and really work that out and then shoot that. I think it's better for bands. You know what I mean? Like if if you want to have support what the band are doing, which is really your job, then you're better off trying to serve the song, you know, because the song is at least 50% of the video. You know, it's, one can't exist without the other. I serve the song. I don't, I'm not making many movies when I make a video. I'm making a video. You know, that's what I'm saying here about inventing an art form. It's not a short movie with a soundtrack. It's something different, you know. The video for Where the Streets Have No Name is one of my favorites. And just the chaos that you capture with that. I mean, how many cameras did you have rolling at one time? I think probably seven or eight. I can't remember exactly enough, you know, and, and, and the helicopter went over. So there was, a, there was, you know, by that time, well, it was all 16 mils, so it wasn't that expensive. And it was a short day. It wasn't like you were shooting way into the night and paying everybody overtime. So you put your resources where you need them. You need multiple cameras, multiple angles. They did three or four takes, basically. Well, they did a mini concert. So a lot of the coverage you're seeing isn't actually of that song. I don't know about I don't know about a lot, but certainly, especially with the crowd, you don't. It doesn't really matter what song they're dancing to; they're still going to dance. You know, so the chaos. You know, people question whether it. You know, was it all staged and all this stuff? And it really was planned very carefully. Like we, you know, we reinforced the roof of the building and. That all that kind of thing to make sure, you know, safety is the first issue. Like if the if the fans had got up on the roof and the roof collapsed, that wouldn't have been a good look. So a lot of planning went into it. You know, one of the places I'd scouted was the Billion Dollar Hotel. I don't know if you know Los Angeles, but there's a, a very old hotel there called the Billion Dollar Hotel. And we scouted that as one of the locations just because I like old sort of Blade Runner type buildings, but the roof of that was so high that there wouldn't be any connection between the audience and the band. And, you know, the idea was really derived from the Let It Be rooftop. 
shows. But looking at that, it wasn't really, you know, I wanted to do something that was more spontaneous or something. And it had um, using technology to bring the audience to the show. So we were leaking information about it beforehand. Whereas the Beatles, the Beatles thing was much more either looked looked more, they just went up and did it. But basically there was no connection between the band and the street. You know, people down in the street couldn't see the band. They could just hear the band. You know what I mean? So so I wanted something where we were down on ground level and the billion dollar hotel was 20 floors or whatever. But I needed a background that sort of had that context. So I built or the art department built a, you know, sort of billboard sign that's in the background of the shoot that you can see. I mean, most people won't see it, but it it sort of separates them from just being against a white sky all the time. So I guess what I'm trying to say, there's quite a lot of planning and preparation and design that went into what we did up to having a backup generator on the roof because we thought the cops would pull, you know, would shut down the generator on the on the ground, which they did. So you're sort of planning for chaos, you know, you know what I mean? And um, by six o'clock, I was back in the hotel watching it and it, and it was like the first flash mob really is what it was, you know, it was a good, a good move by all involved, you know, and it took some balls like the record company and the management and the band, you know, I mean, anything, literally anything could have happened. But what did happen is they were on every news show that night in America. So the band went from, you know, basically a cult band to a national phenomenon overnight, you know, so it was pretty, pretty um, effective as a way of communicating. I love the way too, that you used all the news broadcasts throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Well, we were back in the hotel shooting the news broadcasts and then they tried to sue us. I mean, that was hilarious. They tried to stop us using their footage where they're reporting on our event because it's news, you're allowed to report whatever you want. But if you want to use the news, you can't just say shit. You worked a lot with Chris Cornell over the years, either as a solo artist or with Audio Slave. What was he like to work with? It's not something I talk about much, but he's sort of harsh and has a kind of tragic side to his family story and all of that is something... I can really relate to, and and the two of us sort of had a enough similar psyche stuff going on that it was pretty easy to communicate with each other without saying too much. So he was good. He's a great guy. So you know, it's not something I've really processed. So they, uh, you know, we made some good stuff. I mean, we made you know the the like a stone video, which is really about. You know, and so much of his, so many of his songs are about depression and and separation and all, and all of that. The song, you know, really showed me that sometimes you just have to get out of the way of a good song, and the less you do, the better the video is going to be. And that video has like a billion hits on YouTube from all over the world. Like that, you know, it's amazing how much of his audience are from the weirdest countries all over the world. When you look at the comments, it's amazing. It, it's a um, phenomenal song. But we did some good stuff, but really he's a great singer and a great performer. You can't really go wrong. You just get out the way and try and support what he's doing. You know, give him, he wasn't very confident, you know, so I think the director 
the job with a director really in a, some situations with performers is creating an environment where they can express themselves deeply, you know, and, and somehow we did that. How did Far From Home come about? How did you get on that project? Cynically, I would say it was a limited budget. So there was a sort of, you're going to get it, you know, if you pick a new director and I'm proven director, you're going to pay him less and be able to spend more in front of the camera, you know, produce a logic, which is to an extent valid. So I think that's what happened. You know, I mean, I was delighted. It's a real privilege to shoot a movie. So there you go. How was that shooting a feature as opposed to, I mean, you've been doing short forms for many years now. It's hard to, you know, when you're on a music video or a commercial, it's usually one or two days or three days at the most. And you tend to just go 200% all day long. And but you can't do that on a feature because six weeks later, you're going to be in the great. You can't have that intensity for that length of time. So it's very hard to pace yourself. You know, you know, if you're dealing with a singer, you're really dealing with one performer. There's, you know, I mean, sometimes you'll do a duet, but it's essentially a monologue of some kind. Whereas dealing with dialogue and different characters and how they bounce off each other and and then you got the plot. And then, you know, there's a lot of obviously exponentially more moving parts to deal with than you do have on a on a video. So difficult, difficult process. But you know, people do it. So many musicians aren't necessarily trained actors, and now you're dealing with your Matt Frewers, your Barrymores. Exactly. So you've got some support that you then have on a music video for sure. Yeah, for sure. We, we had some great actors on. I mean, the cast of Far From Home is really, really good, you know, so it was, I didn't find it difficult. Where was it actually shot? Can you tell me about the location? It was shot in Gerlach, Nevada, which is basically where Burning Man is nowadays. It's like a hundred miles of flat salt pan. It's quite an extraordinary place. It's the end of the end of the road. Seems like the logistics to get everything in there and shoot a movie would be really difficult. Yeah, there'd been a movie shot there before in the twenties. I've always had a sort of extreme drive where you go, you know, you're looking for locations, you really keep looking till you find and it had a water tower which nowhere else had that gave a place for the gunman to shoot from and all, you know, it just worked. You know, it was a it was a good location and people, you know, there was enough hotels and so on and trailers there for us to stay in and it worked from that point of view so yeah i mean the producer loved it because it was they've got everybody contained do you have any favorite memories of making the movie i don't know the dust storm was pretty good you know we created a dust storm with like 30 aircraft engines and you know you have to be careful what you wish for the art department was incredible and they did a really good job and boom Next thing you got sand in your eyeballs, you know, for the next twenty years. So it was good. I mean, it was a it was a good shooting. It was a good experience. the The problem is nobody told me that the studio was going into Chapter Eleven. So you you suddenly find that like they're starting. You know, when you go to the water cooler, and there are those pointy cups that you can't put down, right? So suddenly, in the middle of the shoot they changed the normal paper cups for pointy cups. And we're in the middle of the desert in like 100 and whatever degree heat. And I'm like, why? So I asked someone, what, you know, why, what, what? And the, and the answer was, well, 
people have been putting down their cups and leaving the water there and it's a waste. So now we've got pointy cups. I'm like, oh, so what's going on? And then I've started to hear, you know, the restaurant were having some problems. So you've got that to deal with. Trying to keep the morale up during that is tricky, you know. But it got released. So it was in the cinema for an afternoon. That was the era of straight to video, you know. Like the problem is that I was trying to make psycho for teenagers, right? Like suspense. And by the time it came out, the studio wanted it to be a slasher movie. And the and the slasher genre was well played out by then. It was baked and done. They just wanted to get it out and write off the loss or whatever the, whatever their accounting procedure is. So from a from a marketing point of view, it couldn't have been worse. Just the timing. And I mean, you can't blame anyone. I mean, the company ran out of money. So what do you do? But it's finding its own sort of fans on YouTube now. People are much more gracious about it than they were when it came out. So that's good, I guess. Was it poorly received when it came out? It was crucified, yeah. I mean, it didn't really come out. You know what I mean? It was... It was everybody. You know, the problem is, like, to some extent, the industry relies on momentum in the marketing, you know, and, and interest. And if they know it's a wounded animal, everybody needs some meat now and then. You, you know what I mean? It wasn't well received, no. but that's because it wasn't. It wasn't a good slasher movie, and it was sold like one. I mean, it wasn't ever meant to be a slasher movie. So there's many, 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 many more movies get made. They never succeed. So, you know, it's what it is. I think it was, what, 16 years later that you did your second feature with Undiscovered? How was that? It's got some great music in it. It's got some great actors in it. It didn't get an audience for one reason or another. Basically, I think that, you know, for every 100 movies, there's only five of them that find an audience. So what can you do? Happens. You know, it wasn't a great movie. I've yet to make a great movie. I hope to do one day, uh, but it's but it's a good movie and it's got great music and good performances and you know all of that. I mean, it's, not, it's a story for another day if you really that one. But you learn a lot in you know? it. The writing is credited to John Galt. Is that a joke name? I wouldn't say it's a joke. It's definitely a pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. which would probably apply more to to Far From Home because the writers' strike hit right in the middle while we're shooting it. So. That was another whole thing to deal with. You, you've got like 20 different colored pages and you're trying to assemble the script every night. And the real writers couldn't write because they're the union. So other people would write and you didn't know where they were coming from. And so it was difficult. <laughs> so a good script really matters more than you can imagine. You know, it's like a good song. It's the same, same thing, you know. What are you working on these days? Been working on technology startup called Magic Leap, which is a sort of immersive reality classes. I've done a music video for Papa Roach years, 2007 or so, which was in a kind of immersive 360 video, which is, you know, years before Oculus and all of that. Like, I've always been interested in that technology. So I got involved in Magic Leap at a certain point, and that became a sort of billion-dollar startup and it's had its ups and downs but it's it's the best hardware for that microsoft have a version and magic leap have a version and it's really you know it, it overlays 
you're seeing through glass, but imagery is overlaid on top of what you're seeing that's tracked into the environment that you're looking at. So it's, look up Magic Leap and you'll understand it's very complex piece of, and it's really the next layer of entertainment technology sort of combines video games in the real world. You can have, you know, you can have a gorilla sitting in your living room talking to you and it's, and as you move your head, it's tracked. So it stays in the seat and its eye line moves wherever you are. It's like immersive hallucinations around the corner. That's been good. And then I'm working on a, another project about using the blockchain for creative rights management, that whole business, especially in the music business, is really antique. You know, the payment of, of money to artists is still done with a sort of paper ledger, basically. And blockchain is a, you know, a digital ledger that's in real time. So that's another project. And then I'm working on a university project, trying to start a sort of sustainable development university so I, I keep busy you know but i'm a movie script called the third policeman which is one of the funniest books ever written that i'm trying to get cast and finance but so far it's just too weird for people there may be a way of combining that and the magic leap technology because it's a very hallucinatory sort of magical realist comedy novel see how that goes is that what Flan O'Brien? Am I remembering that right? He's the one. Yeah. Did you read the book? It's been a while, you but the few he did. It, it was did. probably back in two thousand five or six. I want to say because I want to say that there was an episode of Lost that was making reference to it. That's correct. Yeah. No, it's a it's a very very unusual and powerful piece of literature on all kinds of levels. You know, so. And it's really, you know, it was, it was on the Guardian's list of the 100 greatest novels, you know, and it's the only one that hasn't been made yet. Why not? You know, so people are afraid of the level of effects involved. You know, I've got Weta involved and they're willing, interested to do the effects and all that kind of, you know, so we're working on that. You know, they do know a thing or two, yeah. Well, Mr. Avis, thank you so much for your time. This has been so good talking with you. Take care. Send me a, a link when you've got something. You do not have permission to use my picture ever, ever, ever. Okay. Take care. Up next, we're going to talk with screenwriter Tommy Lee Wallace. Tell me about the origins of Far From Home. The original title was Test Pattern, and it was built around the notion of kids watching so much television that they just get inundated with the imagery and begin to imitate what they see. That was the starting premise. There was an earlier screenplay. Let's see, I believe it was Ted Gershony who wrote that. I just took that and ran with it as a fractured love story, you could say, between a young girl who finds herself here. There were several iterations. There were a couple of much more futuristic uh, and fatalistic, uh, like mutant bands of young people brought together by a seemingly apocalyptic event of some sort. I don't know how many versions I wrote before I arrived at the story you see that stayed fairly basic within the realm of reality, let's say. 
No, that was uh, early. I wanted to direct it. And the producer, Don Borchers, wanted me to direct. And I certainly wanted to. But by that point, I had, this was after I directed Halloween 3. And that was when I entered the Director's Guild. And Don was trying to do it on a shoestring. And so he was unable to hire me as the director, which was unfortunate. I knew exactly how that movie should go. I think the guy who did it did a pretty good job, you know, and uh, certainly having Drew Barrymore along and Matt Frewer along did not hurt a bit. So I think all in all, it came out pretty good. I'm just still trying to get over the idea of bands of mutants uh, roaming the wasteland. (laughs) When you start with the idea that, okay, out here in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, there are things going on from planet X. It's just, we don't know all the, all the stuff that's going on out there. And when you can, can get from that to atomic waste dumps and all the other mysterious area 51 kind of stuff that uh, is the stuff of legend, it's not hard to make a little bit of a leap into, I kept having a vision of like a, an abandoned condo that was never lived in, but all this sort of modernistic concrete and steel, that's all broken and sand washed and all the rest. And little bands of kids are living there, but they may also have been affected by atomic waste right next door and stuff like that. It seemed like grist for a a lot of eerie stories of one kind or another. It's funny how there are still holdovers of that with the trip across the radioactive plane to get the gas that they siphon or Anthony Raup in that abandoned complex. And I read an earlier version of the script. It was pretty close to what we see today. And I know that you had described the, what ends up becoming a big satellite dish as like a Microsoft or microwave relay, just this huge, almost array, it sounded like. By that point, I'd toured the country several times by car and passed through New Mexico many times on old U.S. Route 60. And along that route is a uh, radio satellite called the Very Large Array. Actually, I believe it was featured in one of, uh, was it Bob Zemeckis' movie, Contact. Those giant satellite dishes that are uh, basically on railroad tracks arrayed all the way across this massive valley called the Plains of St. Augustine. That really does, if you go there and visit and take a look, that's where the inspiration for all that came from. It's just such a massive, it's like a massive zoom lens for a radio telescope out across this huge valley. And depending on what they're looking at, either all those dishes are clustered close together or they're spread all the way across the valley, depending on which astronomer is asking for what, um, what he wants to look at or she. It'll really put your mind in another place. You can just picture, every time I go there, I just picture the saucers kind of gliding through. It's just, it suggests stuff like that. I met the rancher who uh, owns much of that land in that valley because I camped there one night just next to this big old water tank because there were cattle roaming around. He actually came along and said, I'm the owner of this. I said, oh, uh, well, gee, do you want me to leave? I'm just stopping for the night. And he said, no, it's okay. You can stay. And I said, so you're the owner. 
how much of this do you own? And he said, well, you see that mountain range over there? And he was pointing about 50 miles away. Things are big out there, you know, and and the scope of it somehow suggests uh, just a, another dimension or two. But it really was inspiring for uh, Little Pinky uh, to be fooling around all of this stuff that uh, was bigger than he was. Why Pinky? I don't think they actually explain why he's Pinky in the movie. That survived from Ted's draft as a name. I, I thought it was a terrific name. Just eerie, you know, the when the... Uh, mother or grandmother or aunt or whatever the old lady is to pinky just hearing her call pinky like it's just like oh no that's the beginning of a scary scene right there so why tamper with that so was it budget that was causing it to kind of scope down from you know mutants of the wasteland to more of like a isolation story absolutely it needed to be minimalistic very simple don we met on i guess it was probably the fog but he was weaned on uh very low budget horror movies he took some inspiration from what we did with halloween on just scotch tape and chewing gum really so he was of that mindset that he could actually be empowered to produce a movie if he could bring it in cheap enough that had to be one of the considerations was just scale scale this thing down to utter simplicity well you mentioned the cast and the cast is just incredible I met Matt Frewer on uh, Max Headroom. There were six episodes in the spring debut series, and I directed two of those. And Matt and I became friends. And so it was great to see him. We knocked around the desert for a week or two there. I was on location with them uh, out in the Nevada desert. Black Rock, actually close to where uh, Burning Man wound up being held. But it's bleak, strange, desolate place with just occasional surprises. You'd come around a bend in the road and pull off and there would be this oasis with like green growth, bubbling little springs and naked people. It was like, really? You know, a minute ago, you, you would have thought nothing could survive out here. So it was full of surprises. Was that during the shooting of it? Yeah. Writers are sometimes just mistreated terribly and uh, directors and producers don't know how to incorporate a writer. You take someone, uh, a giant in the industry like Steven Spielberg, he knows better. He he really works with writers. He likes to keep them around. He understands who, who somebody who dreamed this thing up is going to keep on having good ideas. And a smart director wants ideas from anywhere he can get them. The proper way to do it is to keep the writer around at least part of the time. And I think that was on Don's mind because the script, I wasn't actually just hanging out with Matt. I was I was writing, you know, working. There was a library. We were in a little town, uh, Gerlach, Gerlach, Nevada. And it had a library where I worked. It's a good place to just sit and type. I think Don was smart about that. He, he wanted me to keep going until uh, they had the script they they believed in. Ultimately, were you happy with the motion picture? It was a blow when I was unable to direct it, so I think I'm still carrying a little bit of that with me. Damn, that was an opportunity I wish I'd had. What about the other screenplays you've written that you haven't directed? How's that been for you? Good God. Uh, every writer has those, a, a whole drawer full. You know, they're just your babies, and you hope that somebody might pick one up one day. Some of them you look at and go, oh, impossible. 
dated. It wasn't that good to begin with. Others, you go, oh, this is a little gym. Maybe it still will have a life somewhere. There are some of those. Because I've gotten into the uh, book world a little bit, I'm thinking about publishing two or three of my screenplays as literary works. I'd like to see them reach an audience in some way, shape, or form, because two or three of them, I think, are pretty good. Yeah, tell me about your latest book. Tell me about uh, Where the Hell is Michael Myers? I didn't realize I had that much to say. It's a funny thing. Uh, Halloween 3 took a long time to become redeemed, let's say. You know as well as I the rocky beginning it had. Back in the day, it was not especially well-received. And although I look back at the box office figures, it didn't do as badly as I imagined from all of the way it was perceived. It was just perceived as an utter failure. And I think that reflected the disappointment so many fans had that there was no Michael Myers, no Jamie Lee, no Knife, all that. And we, and by we, I mean everyone behind the movie, producers, director, certainly the suits, executives, advertising and promo departments, nobody thought to set the table for the audience and really say in plain English, Here's what we're trying to do. It's not going to be a real sequel. It's actually part of an anthology that we hope to kick off this year. Why we didn't see that coming, that there would be a backlash if we just stuck a Roman numeral three on it and put it out there. Why we didn't see that, I will never know, but we didn't. And we paid for it. Like I say, I had more to say about it than I thought. There was a lot to say about Nigel Neal's participation and the script that he wrote versus the script that we wound up with, which was rewritten first by John Carpenter and then by me. That actually took up a lot of many pages to uh, to kind of break that down and explain why we didn't go with Nigel's version entirely. Although I think uh, a fair appraisal of, of his work would be that Surely 50, maybe 60% of what he did, plot, character, everything, is still in there. He made a substantial contribution to the final outcome. What was missing in Nigel's draft was a consciousness of the marketplace. He wrote a script that would have played perfectly on the original Twilight Zone or on any number of British psychodramas from the early 50s. And I don't mean that as an insult at all. It's a compliment. He was an acknowledged master of that medium. He revolutionized that medium for British television. However, in a way, it felt stuck in that world. It did not feel like he had seen a modern horror flick. At least that was the way the screenplay read. It was very, almost a museum piece. And its tone was peculiar. It was much more psychological than actual outright horror. The climax of the movie was built around Ellie and her tormented relationship with her father. She uh, had been given a bird as a present in the story. And as a child, had decided to release this bird. She saw no reason to keep it captive. And when her father found out what she did, he beat her. 
from there on out, they were, it spent quite a bit of time backgrounding that relationship. Every time she got a chance to hold forth about it with uh, Dr. Chalice on the road and going here and coming there. That was kind of what her character was revolving around. And so in the climax of Nigel's version, she is the one who is central to the whole thing. She is reduced psychologically, presumably through uh, Connell Cochran's mental powers or something. She is reduced to the mentality of that five-year-old child. And she's relating to Cochran as her father. And he is brought down by the fact that she is reliving that experience of releasing the bird. She tosses some of the chips in the air as if she's releasing the bird and they catch the flashing signal and that zaps the bad guys. And so she's the agent of their downfall. You can see the germ of that is still in there, but the whole business with the father and the Ellie being reverted to a five-year-old child, it all just felt a little too treacly somehow. It just okay, it's interesting, it's disturbing, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be what we need for a modern horror movie in the U.S. marketplace for people between the ages of, what, 14 and 24. It's just something about it ain't going to fly. So that was where the uh, we started playing around with it and trying to come up with something better. He also had a lot of ideas that were intriguing, but then went nowhere, or in a couple of cases were just horribly cliched. He uh, seemed to be messing with mind-controlled stuff. Cochran, apparently, in his version, had some sort of psychological powers over anyone who came within his uh, orbit. There was a scene where uh, Ellie and Dr. Chalice reach, he called it Sun Hills. I, I changed it to Santa Mira just to honor invasion of the body snatchers. But they're there, they're in their room, and Chalice goes into the bathroom, and oh my God, it's covered with blood, and blood is dripping in the walls, and oh, but it was just an illusion. That's a scene that was cliched back in 1982. I don't know how many times I'd seen scenes like that in horror movies. To make matters worse, it didn't pay off to anything. It, it, I mean, okay, wait a minute. If Chalice, if Cochrane can control Chalice's thoughts and he's having these eerie magical horror moments why doesn't Cochrane just go ahead and blow make his head blow up or something it, it didn't it just didn't gel there were a lot of things like that however that said the basic plot and the basic characters are intact from uh, Nigel's version but, uh, I did spend a lot of time breaking it down in the book along with just uh, an account of the shooting of the movie and uh, we were under a lot of time pressure, naturally, because you can't move Halloween. You know, you've got to release a movie about this subject. You've got to turn your stuff in by the end of August and September, blah, blah, blah. The fans will enjoy it. It's fun. There's some goodies in there, storyboards and uh, a chapter about merch. God, between the fans and the companies, it's unbelievable the stuff that's popping up. Here's a seat cushion. Here's a they still just hot off the my own drawing board. I'm working on a for the back cover an H3 logo, so that's more or less what it's going to look like. That'll wind up on t shirts and hats and stuff, you know, 
fan art galore. Unbelievable stuff. Here's something hand-painted thing somebody gave me at the last show I went to. It's exploded just in the last couple of years. I know you've gotten a thousand questions about Season of the Witch over the years. Did you have to do any research or was this all from memory? I spoke with several people involved. Don Post, the mask maker. I spoke with Nigel's. Nigel, of course, is dead. I spoke with his biographer, Andy Murray. But mostly from memory, yes, I corresponded with John, John Carpenter, about it. He was very encouraging, you know, basically said, you must reclaim your movie, you know. Would have spoken with Deborah, but of course, bless her heart, she's departed. I'd uh, had some conversations with Dean last year, so I was pretty fresh on his thoughts. Of course, a major contributor to the success of the movie, in my opinion, Dean and his crew. That was really comforting to come into a situation where I'd worked with an awful lot of the crew already. I'd been in the trenches with them, so I felt their encouragement. You know, it's like, oh, one of our own came up and is now directing. So we're pulling for you. That feeling was very strong. So when is this book out? Hopefully by the time you are broadcasting this, it will be out. And if not, soon after that. Because of all the merchandise and fan art, we're wrestling with making sure we've got everyone's permission to show their stuff. We've cleared all the, there, there's a nice treasure trove of stills, uh, behind the scenes stills from the movie. And those are all cleared from Universal, but uh, there's still homework to do on uh, all this cool fan art. Close call, but uh, hopefully it'll be out by Halloween. Is this Bear Manor Media that's putting it out? Yes, it is. Oh, good. I know Ben's a huge fan of Halloween 3. Yo, he's been uh, very supportive and uh, just accommodating and uh, got my fingers crossed that it'll be a, a good show. Well, Tommy, it is always so great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. My mind is kind of a blank right now. You can hear the wind whistling through here. Well, two things maybe I can say. One is it's very gratifying to have this movie be... Uh, I'll use the word redeemed after all these years to get the respect and the attention it's been getting is really gratifying and uh, kind of has a healing effect too on an old wound because it really hurt when it came out and was not received well. So that I definitely want to express and also just generally to all the people who like this movie and care about it and have said such nice things to me about this movie and other movies that I've participated in. Thank you. Thank you so much. Up next, we're going to hear from cinematographer Paul Elliott. How did you even get into the business? When I was in school, the woodshop teacher had an after-school photography class. I just fell in love with photography right away. And I just, you know, saved up my money and got a better camera and then put a dark room in my house and just love to spend all night making prints. And uh, so I started out being a photographer. I left school and got hired in a, a company called the Metal Box Company, which was a big corporate company. We had a, a three-person photographic film unit, so to speak, in the, in the headquarters on Baker Street in London. They had a Bolex and they had editing equipment. So I, I was really into music back then. So this was before music videos, you know, so... I would uh, get the Bolex and, and uh, borrow mm, a few rolls of film and go shoot these groups that I like to go see on the weekend. And I 
edited those together and put a little soundtrack on it. It wasn't sync sound or anything, but I and I then I would go film some strange visual images that went with the music. And I thought, well, this is fun to do. I don't know how you make a living doing that. This was before music videos. So I decided to leave. Actually, I had a regular job for three years and realized my life couldn't be 50 weeks a year, two weeks off on holiday. And I couldn't do that. So I left and sort of hitchhiked around Europe for a bit. And then I went to film school. I went to the London Film School for two years, where they taught you how to direct films and how to shoot films and how to produce them and do everything. So I did that to learn about film. Most of what I learned, though, I left and started working as an assistant cameraman making millions of phone calls, trying to get your foot in the door. And then uh, I worked with some decent cameramen, and I learned from being on the set with them. And I just started moving into doing industrials and documentaries in England. And then uh, my wife, who was from California, just didn't want to spend another winter in in London. And uh, she wanted to move back to Los Angeles, actually Hollywood, the Hollywood Hills. And I thought, well, they make movies there. Maybe I should move. Moved to L.A. in 1978, then tried to do the same thing, you know, make a million phone calls trying to get known and then work my way up from that. What were some of your early uh, jobs out in California? Well, it was interesting because I actually was just working as an assistant cameraman and a camera operator. And then this an old friend of mine from film school was editing in a place and said, there's this guy editing and he's shot some of this movie, a horror movie, and he needs someone to shoot some more of it. And so I suggested you and this guy was his name was Fred Olin Ray. And he has done a whole bunch of very, very low budget movies. And so like a hundred thousand dollar movies, you know, they would go on. Uh, Roger Corman would have a spaceship set. It wasn't being used. So on the weekends, we'd go in there and he'd write a scene and he'd get some actors together and we'd shoot a little scene. I think one of them was called Star Slammer or I think it was ended up called Prison Ship, which was. And evolved a lot of blonde women that were slightly too old to be wearing like skin tight leather outfits with whips. They were on a prison ship. It was kind of fun and I learned a lot from it. And then we actually got a million dollars to do a movie called The Jade Jungle. And it had Lee Van Cleef and David Carradine. I mean, it was interesting because, I mean, he would make a poster design. Now, Lee Van Cleef and David Carradine had some cachet, I guess, in other world markets. So he put together a great poster with these two actors you know, and, and some kind of a crime thing downtown L.A. and Chinatown. He'd sell it and make it raise some money on those names and a poster. And then we'd he'd write a script for this uh, thing, which was for me, it was good because we got to shoot downtown in Chinatown. And I could maybe pull about five minutes of that and put it on a reel and show people that I could, you know, um, I could shoot stuff. You seem to work a lot with AIP in those early days, too. I seem to remember you worked on uh, Rock and Roll High School. And Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a fantastic one. You had a really great uh, DP on that one as well, right? Tak Fujimoto, was that right? Uh, no, he didn't do Battle Beyond the Stars. Actually, it was a French DP called Daniel Lacombe, who I got hooked in with, and I started as an assistant. And Battle Beyond the Stars was a Roger Corman movie, a big-budget movie for Roger Corman movie. I don't know, it was like $3 million maybe. And he took bought the studio in Venice, California, and he did this sci-fi movie. And I was a camera operator on it. That was the first film I ever was a camera operator on. So there was a number of those, a number of those films at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Rockin' on High School. What do you remember about working on student bodies? Very little. I think we were in Texas. It was a black comedy type thing. Uh, I think I did a lot of second unit on it. I don't remember a whole lot about that, that movie. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. It's a bizarre one, but 
Mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated by it, especially because I know it's got two directors listed for it. So I know there must have been some sort of conflict there. And then all of the product placement, and it seems like there's Dr. Pepper throughout the entire film. Could well be. Could well be. <laughs> Who was the director? Michael. Was it Michael someone? Michael Ritchie. Michael Ritchie. That's right. Michael Ritchie did Downhill Racer. And he'd done a movie, I think, called The Island, maybe. It was a fairly big budget movie, and it just tanked for whatever reason. And I think he just wanted to get back into just making smaller budget movies. And and it was good for me because he would direct the second unit. And, you know, I was an assistant cameraman. And they'd say, well, you know how to shoot. Let's go shoot some second unit stuff. So those were kind of fun days because it was like uh, it was kind of like the Wild West on movies. You know, before those were all non-union films. So it was it was just uh, rough and tumble. And it was great, you know, being young and just starting out. It was just fun to be on location making a movie. With a lot of teenage girls running around. Crazy times. You've worked several times with the Coen brothers. When was the first time you worked with them? Well, the first one I did was um, uh, the Hudsucker Proxy with Paul Newman. And um, we had Roger Deakins was the DP. And we had the same agent at the time. And uh, he had asked his agent, who did he think? Because we did about five weeks of second unit. And actually, Sam Raimi was directing the second unit on that. So my agent said, well, you should talk to Paul. And uh, so then I got hooked in with Roger and um, and on that movie. And then um, Roger used me on um, No Country for Old Men to do some second unit on that and True Grit. And then The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was not Roger. That was the Bruno, the French DP. They're, they're great to work with. They're, they're really, they're just very smart. Their film sets are so calm and so quiet and they know they know exactly what they want. And Roger, of course, is a brilliant DP. So getting to work with him, I mean, the most I learned was on the Hudsucker Proxy because there was a lot more to do on that. And we had these fantastic sets. Dennis Gassner was the production designer who did these fantastic sets. So it was a real pleasure. And Sam Raimi is a really fun guy and very smart to work with. So we had these montage sequences that were all storyboarded and we go off and shoot those. So, and I got to shoot some sequences in black and white, which is quite rare, which was a lot of fun because you could test a lot of filters, you know, color filters. And there's a whole kind of montage of the, the hula hoop craze, you know, that Tim Robbins comes up with this brilliant idea of he draws a circle on a piece of paper, the hula hoop. And so, and they, we did the sequence of the hula hoop craze is sweeping the world. So I don't think it's in the movie actually, but we did a, we did a couple getting married, hula hooping, and then we had even in deepest, darkest Africa, and they brought in two elephants into a stage, and they dressed the stage as the jungle. I mean, they did a great job. They brought in these two elephants, and they trained them to swing the hula hoops around with their trunks. And then they had two darkies with them. And I think the problem was, they, for whatever reason, they had two white people with blackface makeup. Maybe that was the, because of the time, you know, the, the newsreel, or they thought it was comedic, or I don't know what it was. But I think that it never made the final movie, which was a pity because it was, well, I don't know. For me, it was fun to shoot two elephants and make it look like a jungle in, in the studio in Wilmington, North Carolina, hula hooping with their trunks. Sam Raimi played a, um, boy, I forget now what it was, but he was like an in, in an institution, an insane institution, and he's in a straitjacket. And he played the guy in the straitjacket. And it was really funny because we're on the studio and the producers, the big producers come visiting North Carolina and come to meet Sam on the set. And Sam's in a straitjacket. <laughs> so, I mean, they all found it very funny. But um, And actually, the thrill for me was 
uh, I was shooting another movie in LA and they waited for me to finish for a week so I could get down and do the second unit. And the first thing I ever did was with Paul Newman in a maximum security prison in North Carolina. And he was the best. He was just the nicest guy to work with. And they kept, they kept asking if, are you ready, Paul? And he would say yes. And I would say yes, which was confusing. So I said to the AD, I said, okay, let's get this straight. That's Paul Newman. You call me anything else. But if you say ready, Paul, it means Paul Newman. You can call me buddy or whatever you want to call me. But, and, and it was a, a great moment because to get into this prison, we had to, you know, they searched your pockets and nothing. You couldn't have any keys or anything. And we had these guards with, you know, machine guns lined up across the parade to, to let us in, to escort us in. And when Paul Newman came in, I looked out of the window and saw him walking by this line of guards. And on the opposite wall was a lot of very big black arms pumping outside the windows going, cool hand, Luke, cool hand, Luke. It was one of those, I wish I'd taken a picture. It was one of those movie moments. It was like, oh, my God. They're fun to work with, the Coen brothers. So how did you get the job for Far From Home? I've never met the director before. He was Irish. Uh, he was a music video director. Uh, Don Borchers was a producer who had actually done a film uh, where I'd been an assistant, a Ken Russell film, uh, years before called Crimes of a Passion, which is another interesting movie. And that was an English DP called Dick Bush, who I used to work with. Anyway, I know Don was on that. I don't know if that's how my name came into it, but I met I met the director and he liked me and uh, and hired me to do this film. What do you remember about the shoot? Personally, I'd taken another step forward in my creativity. You know, in, in I'd learned from the previous f- films and everyone you try and learn and get a little better. And it was a fantastic location. It was in Gerlach. I just watched the film again because I hadn't seen it in there. And it's a Gerlach and Empire. And I don't remember the trailer park that they built. I don't remember if that was actually an Empire or Gerlach. But, you know, that area was where they do the Burning Man Festival. So it's really, it's like 100 miles from Reno. And it's this amazing, just flat desert. And there was a trailer park. There was a gypsum. There was a gypsum mine nearby. I think that was the only workers were there. And there was one diner. So it was an interesting experience because the whole crew was sort of in the middle of nowhere. A lot of them were shacking up in, you know, double wide trailers, sharing trailers. And we'd all go to the diner for, you know, lunches and breakfast and dinner. And that was the only place anyone could ever go. So everybody was sort of tight on the crew because you spent all your time together. In fact, there was an amazing, while we were scouting, there was an amazing hot springs in the desert. So the director loved it and you'd use that in the movie. It wasn't in the movie. So people would tend to, on weekends, people would go out there and just go skinny dipping out. This was the 80s. Go skinny dipping out in this hot springs, you know, and take drinks and something. So everyone everyone got really close. The crew was close. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the scenes. I uh, like working with the actors. It was a thrill to work with Drew Barrymore, of course, uh, and Matt Frewer, who played her, who played her father. I mean, Jennifer Tilly was in it. Susan Terrell, I thought, was great in it as the crazy mother uh, who gets electrocuted with the fan in the bathtub. She was terrific. I don't, I don't. Did you ever see Fat City that she was in? That is so good. She, I think she was nominated for Academy Award for that, but she. Uh, she was great. So it was it was a, it was a fun movie to do. I like the director. I like the visuals. And mostly, I mean, when I look at the film again, it was such a great location. It wasn't like you went half an hour outside of Los Angeles to a trailer park. You were really in the middle of nowhere. And we we did a a scene, I think, when Drew first goes into the into go to go swimming in this above ground swimming pool. 
and we had a crane and we did a 360 degree shot which she goes in the in the pool and then you could see the entire trailer park and you come back on her going in the water and he sort of showed how alone she was in this bizarre place well you you couldn't often do that if you're faking the trailer park you know i mean you you, you could see it everywhere and the desert was fantastic to shoot on we we I mean, it was hot. It was like 110 degrees out there in the afternoons. But the visually, I, it was great to shoot there. We did shoot with a very wide lens. It was a, a 9.8 millimeter lens. I don't know if you, when you see the scenes where there are some Steadicam shots on a 9.8 millimeter, they're supposed to have sucked the gasoline out of these old abandoned cars. And um, we shot these Steadicam shots with this very wide lens, which looked really interesting with these old cars in the desert. And we used the same lens when we when we intentionally were in Susan Terrell's house with her two kids where she's screaming at them and they're throwing fish fingers at each other. We shot that with a 9.8 millimeter lens too, which gave it a really distorted feel. I think it went with the scene very well. And I remember the director had intentionally made up some fish fingers that were like four times normal size so that when you when they threw them, you could really see what was happening. So it was a pushing that, you know, he came from the music video world, so he was very visual. There's one scene where we're on top of a microwave tower, which I know was very problematic because it was in, in the middle of nowhere on this tall metal structure. We came back from lunch and we saw in the distance this dark storm clouds coming towards us. And the AED was wanting us to go back to work. And I didn't feel safe sending the crew up there. And in fact, I overheard him say on the walkie talkie, well, let's get the crew up there, but don't send Drew up there yet. It's not safe. So I figured, well, if it wasn't safe for Drew, why is, and it's the whole, it's a metal structure with a metal rung ladder that only one person gets up or down at a time. And so I talked to the two guys that work there and I said, excuse me, but if you see clouds like this come along, what do you do? He said, we get in our cars and drive away right away. We leave. We don't even close the gates. So I said to the AD, I'm not going up there. Uh, I'm not going to send the crew up there. And in fact, this cloud came through and just tore everything apart. It just, the winds was like a little uh, uh, dust devils. And um, it went through and by half hour later, it was clear. And we went back up and shot. And the factory, uh, there's a factory, an old abandoned factory that was interesting to shoot in too. I don't know. It was some, I think they processed silver in this place. I never quite knew what it was. It was huge and abandoned. And we used it because we found, we found it when, when we had to really stage it there. And in fact, Drew Drew could have almost died there because it was very unsafe. There were a lot of holes. It was a big cement structure. It was dusty, windy, and we filled it full of smoke for the scenes. You know, there was a scene where she's hiding around the corner, and the 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 stunt people made sure they had a harness on her for safety. Thankfully, they did because she stepped back and almost fell down a hole, which would have meant falling maybe a few stories down onto concrete. Uh, and she was she was stopped from doing that by the harness. It was on her. That would have been bad. It's an odd movie now when you look at it, isn't it? It's an odd movie. It's odd, but it's very compelling. I didn't know what to expect the first time I watched it and was very happily surprised by it. Well, I think the actors are all good. You know, the story is somewhat predictable, but I think the kid was good. You know, the two the two boys, uh, Andros, who plays, you know, the good-looking bad kid. Well, you think he's the bad kid, but he's not. The other one, Pinky. Who has his mother on ice in the trailer watching TV all the time? Anthony Rapp, yeah, played Pinky. He was good. I mean, it was, I, I really had a good time on the shoot, I must say. Yeah, I really picked up on that wide angle lens inside of Susan Terrell's trailer. That really did help make that scene even more strange and awkward. 
Did we have, I had a daughter just sitting by a couch watching, you know, shoving food in her face and watching TV. And we just put the camera real close on a very wide lens and it looks sort of distorted. And, um, that was effective. And we actually on the out exterior scenes, oftentimes we shot them with really, really long lenses. So you've got that heat haze coming off the desert, uh, like 800 millimeter lenses, which one wouldn't use that much. But I, I actually shot some scenes with an 800 millimeter with the camera way, way back just to get that, that heat haze. So it was, a, it was a very, it was actually a very unique situation, I think. And the film still reflects that, but it has the sensibility. I think it, it took some heat because of Drew Barrymore's age. I do remember there was one scene where we do see her waking up in the morning in the trailer when we had the sunlight coming in through the window and she gets up and she's wearing some kind of pajamas. And it's funny because visually, yeah, she looked very sexy there, but she's only 16. And I remember thinking on that one scene, I feel I felt a little weird about it, although she was supposed to look, you know, she was supposed to look good in the movie. But you wonder about that, especially nowadays. Our sensibility now is a little different than it was in 1989. Talking about a movie that wouldn't necessarily fly in in 2022, you mentioned Crimes of Passion. And yeah, I I love that movie. It is so strange. Well, there's the European versions, even stranger. Yeah, because there was some stuff that they they uh, they cut out. But it was it, it, Ken Russell was was a wild man. You know, we, we I remember we have one scene where. Kathleen Turner takes this police officer and she handcuffs him to a radiator in this motel room. And she is in her leather outfit, you know, and with a truncheon. And she's riding him on top with these shoes, which had these steel spikes on them. You know, she was going crazy. And uh, Ken Russell uh, brought in these massive speakers and played deafeningly loud music while we were shooting this scene. And the only people allowed in the room was he was operating the camera himself, and I was the assistant next to him. And he was going crazy with the zoom lens, and he was having them go more and more and more. And actually, he was, play- he was playing Bartok, some discordant Bartok music, but deafeningly loud. And then uh, Kathleen Turner said, that's it. That's it. You know, I'm not, not going to do any more. And Ken Russell wanted to do more, and she stormed off the set. She said, no, that's it. I'm done. So that was one sequence, I think, that was severely edited for the American version. And being in a room with Ken Russell, just being just being in a room with Ken Russell, with this loud music, with the two of them going at it, you know, was um, a bizarre moment. He could be really mean. I think he fired the production designer in the middle of a street scene in Hollywood. He just screamed at him, you know, he was waving his cane at him, get off my get off my set. So he would be kind of mean. And then I think he'd have a couple of glasses of wine at lunchtime, and then he'd be really nice and friendly in the afternoon. So <laughs> he was a strange man. We did a I remember we had Anthony Perkins outside of Kathleen Turner's apartment, and this was in like Beechwood Canyon. We did a night scene and Anthony Perkins is in the bushes, so secretly watching her apartment. We lit this whole night scene on the street, and then we went in for close-ups of Anthony Perkins. And it was a Friday night, so basically everyone was striking the lights because we'd finished with the whole street scene. And we did the close-up, and then we finished. And then Ken Russell turned to Dick Bush and said, Oh, Dick, you know, I think I need a shot of the street without the car in it. Would you mind doing that? You don't need me, do you? I'll see you Monday. Okay, have a nice weekend, old boy. And the whole crew was really pissed because we had to then go relight the entire street without the car in it. Now, you think he could have figured that out before, but 
it seemed like he did it on purpose or something. You know, he seemed like because he wanted to just mess with people. I mean, Dick Bush wasn't very happy on that because, you know, but you have to do what you have to do. So I don't know. He was a strange. He could be very nice. He was a strange man. Actually, he got married on the Queen Mary. He had an American wife and Anthony Perkins got some kind of marriage license certificate. So Anthony Perkins would married them on the Queen Mary and we had quite a nice party. What are you working on these days? I'm just starting to do a series for AMC. It's called Dark Winds. We did the first season last year. It got a lot of great critical acclaim, actually. It's a, it's a Native American Navajo story. Tony Hillerman wrote these books about this uh, Joe Leaphorn, who's a Navajo detective. It's set in the 70s. So we yeah, we did this first season, and it, was, it did well. And so we're doing season two. We're just starting that. We shoot it in about three weeks' time. We start shooting. Now, are you doing that local to you, local around Santa Fe, or do you have to go back to L.A. for that? It's all around uh, Santa Fe, it's north of Santa Fe. It's a great location. There's a Tasuki, the Pueblo people of Tasuki. There's a backplot there with these amazing rock formations. And so we're actually going to go. Uh, we're shooting there. We built a Navajo village there. Where they built houses. They built structures. And we have a studio. There's an old casino called Camel Rock Casino, which is now Camel Rock Studios. So it's a, the interior. They built sets for the police station and his house and hospital room and various things like that so but you should check it out it's uh i think it's a good show mr elliot thank you so much for your time this was so great talking with you well hopefully it was a bit of some use you know i've been doing this a long time so it was fun to talk to you rounding out our interviews we've got producer donald p borchers just a little word of warning mr borchers was talking to me from a Starbucks, so the audio quality isn't that great, plus it kind of cuts in and out at times, so hopefully we'll use the power of editing to make it sound a little bit smoother than the original recording. Let's talk a little bit about Far From Home. How did that project come together? The year was somewhere around 1981-ish. I had developed my first screenplay that didn't get sold, but it was kind of futuristic thinking. It was called Test Pattern. The idea was kind of like in the in the vibe of a Dr. Fibes kind of spooky movie. Somebody like Vincent Price could look through your TV box and cable box and see into your home. And that was the, the horror gag. The script wasn't that good, and we tried to market it, and I figured I need a new script. And, and I was working at Apple Embassy, but I was, you know, like everybody else in town, you know, trying to do a hustle. I read this newspaper article about this kid in Florida. And what happens is he watches so much television, he kills his mother. He's 10 years old, stabs her to death with a knife dozens of times, and cannot process at the age of 10 being raised in a trailer park why it is that just like the roadrunner, she didn't reanimate. That inspired me to get an idea for a movie, and I called that movie Test Pattern. And at the time, I called it Test Pattern. Everybody alive knew that what happened when the station signed off at the end of the day. So um, I needed a writer, and I needed some money. So uh, I pitched my idea as a one-page concept to Blossom Khan, the head of production for Apple Embassy, the company I worked at. And she figured, he's asking for nothing yet. He's asking to hire a writer. I get to approve the writer. If I don't like the writer, it'll never happen. If I like the writer, why wouldn't I want to develop? It sounds like an interesting idea. 
and, and people take ideas from the newspapers all the time. I had been working in the accounting department, and I had finished a project in New World where my job, which was over the years changing, but principally involved in rendering statements to outside producers in one way or another before I went into the production department, I had convinced the treasurer, Roger Burlage, to buy a Fortran 4 computer and automate everything. And in the summer of, I want to say, 79, 80, around, my intern was Gail Katz. I kind of was asking around to people I knew, like Gail, and, well, and she knew Chick, and Chick knew this guy named Ted Gershony. And he had a really nice resume. I mean, here I am this many years later. I can't remember it, but it was, it was nice. And I said, Ted would, would write this? And, and, and Chick says, yeah, yeah, Ted would write this. So Blossom gave us some money from uh, AFCO Embassy, and Ted wrote a first draft. Now, at the time, Jonathan Kaplan had just done this thing with Matt Dillon, which was considered very edgy. It, it was about high school students in a, in a housing development, and they, they were bad kids. Over the edge. That's the name of it. We were thinking, you know, we'll go that kind of way with it. And, and so Ted kind of was taking us in the, in the kind of direction that maybe Jonathan Kaplan might want to direct it. But it was a first draft, and, and it needed a second draft. Blossom wasn't in the mood to give Ted more money. A lot of development executives feel we've given them any money, they should give us something we could shoot if they're real writers. And I think she was no different in that respect from that ilk of people. I'm not saying they're all like that, but I'm saying some are, and she may very well have been one of them. She was the person, literally, at Avco Embassy that collared John Carpenter after Halloween's success and got him to make the fog for Avco. You, you got to give 100% of that credit to Blossom Khan. So having met, um, well, you know, I mean, I worked on the fog. I was the accountant and, and everybody did, did more than one job. But Tommy Lee Wallace was the production designer and the editor. And lived around the corner from me, just, you know, coincidences of life. So I, I started to become friends with Tommy, just, you know, talking about things, hanging out. And I knew he was writing an Amityville thing for uh, De Laurentiis. And so I knew that a lot of people respected his writing. And I said, why don't you read this thing Gershini wrote and see if you got a take on it. You can direct it for Pete's sakes. And he liked the sound of that idea. And so th then he wrote a draft and it, it was pretty good. But then Norman Lear bought the company. <laughs> so it kind of died there. Flash forward to around 86-ish. And I meet Skip Steloff, who's touting Flipper the movie and such things. And I meet his daughter, Ellen, who works for Vestron. And she's in the acquisitions department. And she wants to buy lots of movies. And she doesn't have the kind of money where she can call CAA and say, what does your A-list director want to do next? We want, to, we want it. Well, yes, they wanted it, but no, they didn't have the money to pay for it. They, they had to do business with independents like me. When I met her and started to talk to her, you know, I'm, I'm going through a laundry list of everything I um, have either a finished script or a concept on. And she's, you know, meh, meh, meh. And so then, then I say, test pattern. Tommy Milley Wallace. Now, at this point in time, it's still owned by Avco Embassy, who, to make matters worse, now actually belongs to Dino De Laurentiis. That's a story unto itself. 
he now owns the old Avco library of developed properties. I, I got to go get the rights. I don't know Dino DiLorenzis, and I have no reason to believe he'd return a phone call if I had placed one to him. If you go to producer school, which there really isn't a good one, what they should be teaching you on, on day one is producers are not in the business of granting options. Producers are in the business of collecting options. Dino DiLorenzis is a producer. He's got the script I want. I develop that script. He's a good producer, so he should know that he's got no business ever giving an option on one of his properties to another producer. It's just bad produced. If that producer wants to get that made, well, there, a partnership should be forged, not a buyout. So anyway, I want to buy out. <laughs> so it shouldn't happen. So I, I remember all the jobs I've ever had. And one of the jobs I had was being a tour manager at Cartan Travel, which required that over the course of less than 12 months, maybe eight months employment with them over a period of a few years, I had spent the better part of maybe six or seven calendar days inside their home office in Chicago. It was a real treat when you got to go there and meet everybody and walk around and get free Cokes out of the machine and things. I really remarked one day when the vice president of the company sat down, gives me a free Coke, holds it up and says, it's the little things, you know? And then we both look out and his secretary is getting a dozen red roses delivered. My takeaway from it was, that's the button you want to push if you want to get her to do something for you. And I remembered that. So here I am trying to get test pattern made, knowing that I can sell it to Vestron, but Dino owns the rights. So my first order of business was to call Dino. And what's going to happen is whoever screens his phone calls is going to answer. The fact that she's being paid to screen the calls, she, she knows the lay of the land. She knows who to send through. And it's not like today when you have email. You know, like where you could just send an email directly to Dino. And, I mean, you can't, he's dead, but right. But, but to wh whom it may concern, and they may very well see it. They may very well see that email, you know, because they may very well not have their, their email all screened. Most talent agents don't particularly have their email screened. I call and she says, Who's this? Donald P. Borchers. I said, and Who am I speaking to? And she says her name. And then I say, could you spell that, please? Well, she spells her name. Well, I already have his address. Before the end of the day, she had a dozen red roses for me. Thank you for the phone call. And I know I'm on his waiting list. So now she, she calls me back after she gets the roses, right? Yeah, I said, so, you know, I used to work at um, Afco Embassy, and I read this newspaper. I got Ted Gershney. I got Tommy Lee. And I want to run with it. I don't want my baby dead over there. You know, I, I want my baby back. <laughs> and she fully understood. Maybe the next day, I get a call from Dino DeLaurentis. Hey, what's going on here? He asks me why it is that he should do it. And I think I somehow pull out of my ass that I'm the best guy with movie budgets in the business. You might want me to do a budget for you. You know, you might need a favor from me one day. And I know he's Italian. <laughs> you know. So with his secretary's recommendation and me promising to reimburse all the costs, now from his point of view, and I say this to him, I said, you know, you, you know, and I know I'm identifying a screenplay that's not quite ready to shoot. that You don't even know you own. So when you bought the company, you didn't even figure it had a value, zero. And now you look it up 
they got like 20, 30 grand in writer's fees, add on the interest for a few years. That's found money, man. Why not just take the profit? And you win, I win, everybody wins. I'll do you a favor. The favor came later on a movie. Uh, oh, I'll be damned if I can remember anything about it. Anyway, he brought me in to, to produce a movie for years later that he ended up changing directors. And when the director left, the new director had their own producer. And so I then just exited. But I had developed a pre-production on it and, and more than repaid the favor. So here I am now with, with the rights to proceed and Vestron steps up and they give me the production contract and, and advance the turnaround money. We buy Odino, we've got the rights back. And what happens next? I call up Tom Manley Wallace, tell him the great news. He's really excited. And a strange turn of events happens. Ellen now um, gets input for the first time from the head of the department. I forget the guy's name, real Yahoo. And uh, he fancied himself as, as the guy in, in um, Goldstein's book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, as the guy who, who, who knows everything. Yeah, he can tell. He knows. Just, that, just ask him. The first thing he says is, yeah, it should be the girl's story who comes through town and gets victimized by the kid who watched too many TV commercials after he kills his mother. All that stuff was in the script, right? But it was all featured from the point of view of the kid. In our movie, that was played by Anthony Rapp, the guy who's on the Star Trek series now. And he was in Rent. And it was it was clearly his movie in the, in the screenplay test pattern. He was the protagonist. You meet him in the opening scene, not Drew Barrymore. And then Larry went on to say that he thought that somebody like Brooke Shields, you know, should be the girl. Well, you know, and I made the perfunctory phone call. And once again, um, the reason they're talking to me is they don't have the money for people like Brooke Shields. So that was never, never going to happen. But I'm rolling with it. And I've got the greatest casting director in the world. And she talks to the agents so often that she knows the, the current status as of lunchtime, who's in rehab, who's not, et cetera, et cetera. So she knows that Drew Barrymore, yes, at the age of 13, has just completed rehab. Isn't that sad? But what that means to an independent producer is if you start with the premise that a deal's a good deal if it's good for both sides, well, that's a good deal then for both sides. Well, it would be good for us to have Drew Barrymore star in our movie. She was at ET. It would be good for her to be in our movie. She needs to prove to the world that she's sober, can hit a mark, can remember lines, and be on a budget. And this is a low budget. So I'm employable, baby. I'm back. It's good for both of us. And we didn't pay her minimum wage. We, we paid her full schedule F, which is the minimum flat picture contract, which at the time, I think it was like 45000 bucks for the picture. I think it went up to sixty five at one point. I don't know what it is today. Where, where you can just pay the actor one chunk of money for the... And that, and that buys out the show, essentially. I, it doesn't buy out things like meal penalties, you know, or things like that. But you get the idea. And so she was she was on board. We budgeted her mom. She, was the, she needed a guardian. And Tommy Lee started to get to work on the script. And that had to immediately stop because the next thing that happened was there was a writer's strike. So he's not allowed to finish the script. I owned a production company. And we signed an agreement to be part of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television and Producers. It's called the AMPTP. I was aligned with them for negotiating. But the same way you have to re-sign the Guild Agreement every three years, so do you have to stay an active member of the AMPTP. And I was at a point that coincided where I could be an independent again, negotiate it all by myself, 
my own company. And the Writers Guild would legally have to do it if you ever spent five minutes and read the, the rules that are called the National Labor Relations Board rules, which I actually learned in college. And the NLRB rules require the unions do things like bargain in, in good faith with a bona fide employer. And if I'm a signatory to an actor's agreement and I've been making movies under the same banner, and this is like movie number 12, which was the case, it'd be bad faith not to negotiate with me. What the Writers Guild does is they put out an interim agreement. They, they want everybody to stay unified, which they successfully did in, what was it, 2008. The strike appeared to be solid up until May. What happened with me was I really wanted to make my move. So I went to Tommy Lee and I said, Tommy, we know each other. We don't screw with each other. We both care about the movie. We both understand the budget. We both understand what we're doing. We both understand you shouldn't be asked to write non-WGA. And I shouldn't ask you to write non-WGA. But this is the interim agreement they just gave. You ready for this? The writer gets final cut. Now, why does the WGA put that? Yeah, why, does it, why do they put that in the interim agreement? Because they know that there isn't a single producer, studio, or production company that could, should, or would agree to that. So they know they have a non-starter because they don't want to make any fucking independent deals. That's what kills a strike. People aren't going to strike the studios. They're going to work under the table for the studios. Here's the thing about writers. You can't prove the day they wrote. All they have to do is wait till the day the strike's over, then add seven days to it. And that's the day they wrote the thing they've been writing for four months, getting paid every week. And this is the problem with writer strikes. So this is why they could not strategically offer an agreement on my fucking movie that I've been waiting years to get made. So now they have to go through the charade of negotiating. And from their point of view, it, it's it's like, what was that Netflix series, Game of Thrones and, and the Red Supper, where they just like kill everybody in the audience. You know, They're just going to bring in 20 producers at a time at a table. I'll have them talk to the executive director. I, I think his name is Brian Walton. Don't shoot me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not great with remembering names. And then one by one, be affronted and then be asked, well, what's your counteroffer? And I'll take it to the board, you know, and try and waste 90 days. Right. And that's that's their goal. So I remember, you know, producer number one, a big VIP. I remember specifically Gail Ann Hurd standing up. I remember specifically Deborah Hill standing up in my in my group. Right. I'm like the 14th guy. I'm represented by the firm that Linda Lichter is a part of, but it isn't Linda who's there that day. It's her associate, Peter. And all the attorneys have been standing up because the producers are so offended, right? And they're making this argument, that argument. And so I, I put my, my hand on Peter's shoulder. I go, no, no, let me speak for myself, Peter. He's my attorney, but he's being paid for by Vestron. I don't have the kind of money to pay Linda Lichter's firm. <laughs> and so everybody's got a vested interest in seeing this thing going, and it's not that much money. So I put my hand on his shoulder. I stand up. I said, Brian, I've read every single word of this interim agreement. I wanted to be like Gregory Peck and to kill a mockingbird and make him think that I was standing in his shoes and appreciating his position. I said, I think I may very well have created the exact same document for the exact same reasons, which is why I'm here to say I'm prepared to accept this agreement as it is, sign it right now and get back to work before the end of the day. No negotiation. Everybody gasped. Brian literally fell out of his chair. I mean, he had to like pick himself back up. This is the one thing that they knew would never, ever happen. Well, once everybody saw that Brian then backtracked, well, you know, 
I, I didn't say it was ratified by the board yet. I mean, I'm going to have to bring this back to the board for ratification. I said, well, bring it back to the board for ratification. This is offer made in good faith. And I said, I'm the only one in the room I think that's not an attorney. I, I think it's called offer and acceptance, sir. You offered me something. I said, I agree with every, and I think I swear a lot. <laughs> so I, I, I think I think I said fucking word. And Brian knew me very well because I had my own agreement with both the DGA and WGA. I had I had the Planet Productions agreement, not the not the AMPTP agreement. I had the we called them the special low budget agreements. So that he knew me, <laughs> you know, I stood up. Never expected this to happen. Does all that double talking, you know? You know, I have to check, have to check, have to check. And and so now Gail Ann Hurd, who is pretty much always the sharpest knife in every drawer, stands up immediately. I agree with Mr. Borchers. <laughs> I also want this interim agreement. Deborah Hill, she figures out the sham. She's a player. She she lived in a Jeep in San Francisco when she produced a movie for Pete's sakes. I mean, she, she, she knows a con man. She jumps up and she goes, yeah, me too. I, I, I'm going to take the inner agreement as it is and get back to work tonight too. And so like half the people in the room now are with me on this. <laughs> And, and Brian's got a really big problem on his hand. He's got to now come back and report to them that their agreement that they offered was voted down by the board. Not acceptable. They got to start over and, you know, and, and the outrage, you know, what are we supposed to do? Counter our own offers. You made an offer. We accepted it. And all we're supposed to like counter your offer and make it better. So I, I explain all of this to Tommy Lee, what happened. And he believes me, uh, you know, and he knows Deborah Hill. He worked on that show. She lived in the gym. She, she was with John Carpenter for years. Tommy grew up with John. I mean, that if anybody could call Deborah and check the veracity of the story, Tommy did. He did. And, 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 and he said, <laughs> I, I think his words were something like, and, and again, I'm paraphrasing, fuck Brian Walton. And he goes, you get your ass up to location. You bring me up to location with a typewriter. I'm sitting there in Gerlach, Nevada, where, FYI, they set the land speed record. It's just nothing but flat. Gerlach is where the westernmost part of the highway system elbows around and comes back. Nothing comes from the west, passes through Gerlach, and ever goes farther east because there's no road. <laughs> I mean, you cannot do it. They have Burning Man in that area for all the same reasons. So Tommy's like, you know, just get me up to Gerlach. Nobody will even know I'm up there. I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just say that everything I wrote, I wrote under the original deal. You, you can just pay me the same money and uh, I'll sell you a script. We'll figure it out. And that's, that's the way we move forward. Luckily, the whole process of making our movie took enough weeks, two or three months before we got into production that Tommy went forward in good faith and, and, and also in good faith when there was finally a way to get back on board with the WGA, I signed everything back onto it, you know. So everything worked out and, and we got the movie made. But along the way, once once they changed the protagonist and we went with Drew and Tommy's rewriting the story to make it her story, and it's fine. It was a good movie either way. I was happy to make either picture. It occurred to me that the title didn't work anymore. And I'm fran I'm frantic for the new title. Because my responsibilities, and I'm not telling the story sequentially, I'm just recounting the important events of pre-production. At one point, and this would have been rather around the same time that the writers went on strike, we needed to name the director. And I needed a new title. I'm driving around in my car around Hollywood, being a rambling, gambling kind of guy and doing my thing and listening to the radio. And, I, and I'm listening to 10,000 Maniacs. 
And they've got a song that's essentially chorusing the words far from home. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, well, for, for Drew Barrymore, that's, that's the song. And then the next day I went to work and I wrote a letter to Anne Rice because we had exchanged a few letters. She liked my Ken Russell movie, Crimes of Passion, and I liked her vampire movie, and her vampire book, and an interview with a vampire. And, and she said that she, she had just finished a new book and wanted me to read Belinda. And I had read that. And so I wrote her a letter back and said, yeah, I wanted to be Drew Barrymore's summer book in the movie. <laughs> So I, you know, I'm, I'm into Bestron and I'm, and I'm winning all my agenda. I, I want, I want Drew's summer book to be Belinda. Oh, that's a great idea. I want the new title to be Far From Home. Love that title. Perfect. Got it on one. You know, I didn't go in with a list or anything. I just said this, this new title. And I said, and I want Ron Colby to direct it. Now I had known Ron over the years in a, in a number of ways. He, he's one of those guys that really has mastered the business. He was a casting director. He knows Broadway. He was a location manager. He's a, a production manager, a line producer. When they were filming the Coppola's movie, The Conversation, Coppola gave him a stipend and the use of his crew and equipment. And Ron shot a short called The Photographer, which was screenable at the time. You just book a screening room and he brings his print over and you watch the movie. I could get a screening room when when I was head of production at, at New World and, and so I and also when I worked at Avco. So I used to do it all the time. And I watched Ron's movie on one of my days watching people I, I knew and wanted to be in business with. And so I thought Ron Ron could be a pretty interesting director, especially if you're on a budget, because he knows how to produce. And this just all makes sense. And I had produced Ken Russell and and Ken Russell had produced all those music documentaries for the BBC. He knew what a budget was. I mean so it was really easy working with him to maximize the spend. He wasn't fighting over stupid things or, or for stupid reasons, which immature directors may not want to comprehend the entire spend and just be childish about something. And Ron, I knew wasn't going to be like that. And I really wanted him to direct it. So they just poo-pooed the idea out of the gate because he didn't have Zhuzh. I don't know how to say it. That that thing that some people look for that gets them excited. He won the golden, whatever the thing is, at this film festival, whatever it is. Okay, good for him. Okay, but I'm telling you, I know Ron, and I know he can connect with his material, and I know he can knock it out of the park. So um, I say to Ron, well, that's where I'm at. It's almost like you're going to have to have God put his arm around you and say, trust me on this, guys. And he says, I could do that. And I said, I bet you can't. He goes, no, seriously. Coppola always said that um, if he could ever help me get a directing gig, uh, tell him who to call. He says, who, who, do, who do you call? I said, Ellen Stelloff. Now, the thing about Skip Stelloff is he's a real practical joker. Now, Ellen's not an unimportant executive at Bestron. She's got a secretary, a proper office, a view that you would you know kill for. And she's doing quite well. And her dad calls up the secretary all the time and says things like, this is Ronald Reagan, is Ellen in? And so knowing that her dad always says he's somebody famous, who he's not, on the day, the phone comes in, this is Francis Ford Coppola, I'd like to speak to Ellen. And you can hear Ellen whine from the next room, tell my dad I'm busy. And she goes, Mr. Stelloff, Ellen's busy. And, and he goes, I, I don't know who Mr. Stelloff is. Again, this is Francis Ford Coppola, I'd like to speak to Stelloff. Ellen. He's insisting he's Francis Ford Coppola, and he's not going away. Sounds like it might be important. I'll put him through. 
before he could say this is Francois, Dad. And he's like, no, this is Francis Ford Coppola. I've been trying to explain this to you. Now, he gives a reference like, and if it's no good, I'll redirect the picture, you know, kind of reference. Like, how can you not? How could you not have hired after you heard his words? Yeah, not saved for eulogy, delivered right now in person, up front ahead of time. And Ellen's boss, this Yahoo, who already mucked up my title and my concept, which, by the way, I think when you're making exploitation pictures, I don't think there's any honor in being true to the original concept. At the end of the day, if you're going to do a slasher movie, like Test Pattern wanted to be, and when I say slasher movie, let me withdraw that, teen angst movie, the, the way Over the Edge was, the Jonathan Kaplan picture, which was what, what Test Pattern wanted to be. And then you shift gears and say, I think there's more money into making it a female teen exploitation movie. You put a teen girl in trouble. You add on to that a peculiar marketplace advantage where that teen girl could literally be Drew Barrymore at that year, at that date, inside our budget. Perhaps it was a much better idea than the one I started with. So he says, I want to get a video director like from Propaganda Films who's been making these really hot music videos for MTV, and then the directors go on to make really stylized pictures. I suggested that if you talk to somebody like Mike Nichols, who said, when I directed Day of the Dolphin, I was really worried about all my camera angles. When I, when I directed The Graduate, I was really worried about the performance. You want the camera angles? Yeah, let's go with Mir Avis. You know, he's interesting. He's available. He's psyched to do a movie. He'll work at the budget range. He'll deliver a picture that'll be really interesting to look at. I said, if you want the performance, let's go with the guy that used to work on Broadway and Coppola says. I said, I, I, th I think the money here, since we have Drew, I think the money's in performance. That's my bet. And I bet on Ron. And they said, well, if you want to make the movie here and not argue about anything, then make it with Merit. And I said, once again, happy to make it with Merit. Had to make my argument for Ron because he was my first choice. But everything about Merit sounds good to me. And I met him, and then he came in and interviewed in front of me and everybody at Bestron for the job. This was before they picked him. But in the interview, what won him over, and I couldn't figure it out. I, to this day, I really can't figure it out. But I saw it happen in the room, the magic, when he started to explain what the movie sounded like. I don't remember the words he used or the descriptions he used, but he really had a hit on it. Perhaps, and this may just be me having a false recollection, the way water drips makes a sound. And he related it to a scene in the picture and talked about featuring it in the mix. And boy, he won the job, hands down. Ron came in and talked about the fact that he read the script and looked at the schedule and was pretty sure it would be a challenge, but it could be done. <laughs> you know? Very realistic approach about everything. So now we're weeks away from our target date, and, and here's where we're at. We don't have a location locked down yet. We have to recast one of the leads. Who was that? Anne Ramsey uh, was Susan Terrell, and she was cast. Now, there's a guy who does all the insurance uh, cast physicals for decades, Dr. Don Michelson. All through the 70s and 80s, if you were insuring a movie, you pretty much had your cast person get driven over to Dr. Don Michelson's office on Sunset, pop in and out, and get stamped approved for the movie. So we send Anne in. She gets her cast physical. She becomes insured. 
And approximately three weeks later, she dies of terminal cancer. It's like, how do you miss that, Don? You could have saved everybody some time. <laughs> now, the good news for me was I had a bona fide insurance claim, and I'm nobody's fool. So if we're having problems getting the location or whatever, 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 I think it's pretty much really a function of uh, recasting at this point. <laughs> That's my disposition. So now with Susan Terrell firmly in place, and I'd known her from Angel, and, and she got nominated for um, what that John Houston picture. Oh, Fat City, yeah. Real actress. I mean, range. I, I mean, good. The talent in front of us with Anthony Rapp, Drew Barrymore, Matt Frewer. Jennifer Tilly. I mean, Linda Francis gave me an amazing cast. And she had this real way of being able to find out why these dates, the actors really could make an excuse to accept my paltry budget, which was always sag and always overscale, but never really much more than Schedule F, you know, the maximum flat picture buyout, pretty much always topped out there. But, you know, for working actors, and, and it all makes sense. So now how do we nail down the location? Reno seems to make sense for things like the telecommunications tower, driving shots to and from, such things, interiors, you know, building interior sets. But it doesn't really make any kind of sense for a lot of other stuff that Gerlach's pretty much perfect for in every way, except but for the fact that Gerlach at this point in history that year had two brothers and it had two bars. And one brother owned one bar and the other brother owned the other bar. And it was said through legend that neither brother had spoken in the 38 years since the day the one had married the love of the other's life. And for us to make this movie, we're going to need to do things like shoot at both bars, not have one guy be an ass because we're working with the other guy that day. <laughs> we have this kind of like town hall. And I forget where the middle ground was, I, I think I think they agreed to let one of the brothers use the bar, but it may have been the school for neutral ground. But you get the idea. There isn't that many people in Gerlach. It's not like there's a thousand people in Gerlach. It's a question of hundreds and low in number. And a lot of them live in trailers. And there's a school and everything. So they all get together and they're going to vote that night. I think it was a bar, come to think of it, because at one point our location manager, Alicia Alexander, <laughs> She actually pulled her top off to convince these drunken bastards to vote for her. I don't want to lose my job. I need a location by Monday or I'm out of here. And, and don't you want me to come back? And they all agreed. And, and, and we got into the town. And it, it was very political tiptoe through that town. I mean, the brothers never reunited on our watch. We had heard stories that in the few moments over the decades where one or the other brothers got really bad flu that the other brother uh, would bring like homemade soup in the middle of the night when nobody could see but who knows but it's one of those legendary tales of uh, lustful jealousy so that's where our, where our challenges were um getting the script turned around from the original new world then dino de laurentis finding the director changing the shift in the protagonist doing all of that under the cloud of the writers guild strike and then figuring that out after the fact. And here's interesting things I learned as production notes producing the movie. The first thing I learned is your budget form really needs to have a line item that can be ignored everywhere except when you're shooting in the fucking desert that says refrigeration. 
refrigeration is a big issue in the desert. It's an issue for food spoilage. It's an issue when you when you just are a smart producer, and I'm not stupid. So the first thing I did was I commandeered the largest standing structure, which was the high school. I put a lease on it. And in my lease, I was allowed to, to lay plywood over their gymnasium floor and then build anything I wanted on the plywood. So I, I built all the standing sets that I would need for rain cover. And it's oddly enough, when you're shooting in the desert, it's not so much on a rainy day when you call the cover, although when it does rain, you do call the cover, as rare as that is. It's these dust devil days where these little tornadoes come up and they're going to like turn your car over if you drive around and up. So, yeah, we, we had to go inside and shoot those sets, call cover maybe once or twice. But here's the thing that you learn quickly when you're when you don't know it for the first time and you didn't have that line in your budget. The carpenters, they got to stop working after a couple hours. They're going to like die of stroke. You have to rent these things. They're called forced air units. And, and they just pummel cold air into a place. And you get two or three of those babies inside a, a, a proper-sized basketball gymnasium, and, and it's 65 degrees all of a sudden. But you're spending gasoline like nobody's business with the petrol run of those generators, unless you can power them off. And then maybe you can get the school to not pay attention to the fact that they'll get that electricity bill in a month after we're gone. Other lessons learned was the importance of these little neck handkerchiefs, keep keep dimming, dipping them in either water or a thing called sea breeze and, and wearing them around your neck because we're shooting in the desert. you know. And we had to bring caravan tents because there's absolutely no shade. So if we didn't create natural shaded areas just for people who weren't particularly working that minute, so they had a moment off, but we weren't giving them a private room to be in, they were crew workers, we had to provide shaded areas. So all of that falls under the title craft service. And the craft service budget increases a lot when you go to special needs places. And then I did the stupidest thing, which I never would ever repeat again. I had identified two cars in, in the area through the local ads that we could buy for the show that were well within our budget range and allowed for us to send them to a shop and get any motor work or anything done or whatever and, and painted whatever the color you want. They were reasonably boring-looking sedans. I mean, I'm not going to make any sales argument for their creative aesthetic. And then you saw the car we actually used in the movie. The, the director found that, like, strolling through a junkyard. There was no double on it. It was nothing but fucking problems the whole damn movie. I paid to put a new motor in at one point, and then, and then the clutch would go. and then the, I mean, just everything. The, nothing about that car ever wanted to work, or continuously, or when you needed it to. And there was no double on it. So the hero car had to do the driving shots for second unit, a scheduling nightmare. It was on the verge of sending us over budget. That's how bad it was. And I never would make that mistake on another movie ever again. So many issues before you even roll the camera. What's it like as the shoot itself is going? Well, it, it was a kind of joyous shoot. As you shoot a movie, sometimes you hit production problems. Like when I was doing a movie for Steve Friedman called The Stranger, we kept having a problem making our day because we were in the desert. You know, you get the problem, things go slow in the desert. And so I would call up the writer, Greg Poirier, and then he would take a scene that was four pages long and maybe two or three different sets and make it one scene that was one and a half pages long on one set and we'd be right back on schedule. Well, Far From Home was no different 
I'm a bit too distant to remember what the exact issues were, but I remember Tommy Lee being furious at the typewriter while we were shooting. He was still typing during week one. That's a fact. He did get to go home, I think, around the second week or so. So when you're doing that, the new pages that come out, they're colored pages. And, and there's, an, there's a hierarchy for this. The script start. this is the old days. The script starts out on the white pages. And then, you know, maybe 10 pages got rewritten. And, and they come on a set of pink pages, so numbered. You open your three-ring binder and you remove page two white and stick in page two pink. And so now you have a script that's got two colors in it, mostly white, a little bit of pink. And then come the blue pages and then the green pages, right? So the joke on our film was everybody's getting along so well. We've got a colored page chart for the who's sleeping with who chart. There was this big hot springs out on the edge of town. And apparently a certain element of our crew used to like to go out there and skinny dip. And they hook up right after. And then the production office coordinator was keeping tabs on the chart. And that's the first time I found out in life about hall passes. I thought you were married. Yeah, but it's a location picture. She does the same thing. Okay. Drew herself was an issue. She's 13 years old. Her mother comes to me and explains a very, very, very delicate situation, which, without getting into the, the, the details of it, resulted in me having to send a married carpenter who was about 31 years old, had a wife and a couple kids, home. That put Drew in an immediate bad mood with her mother, me, the production, everything. I can't remember how the conversation got framed. I don't think I was smart enough to just walk up and bribe it. If I was, I would have, believe me. But it, it somehow got presented to me that if I would agree to take Drew out on the town in Reno, it would give her something to look forward to. So I'm thinking, the only thing on my mind when I get to Reno is I want to shoot some fucking craps. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to babysit Drew. But if, if that's what will get us through it, and sure enough, she sparked up. She's smiling on the set again. Everything's getting done. And she makes a couple real confirmatory, if you will. This is going to happen in Reno, right? You're not welching, right? You know, that, that kind of idea. Those wouldn't have been the words, but that would have been the, the, the gist of it that I was taking away. Now we get to Reno, and I, it's my night to do right by Drew. I go to one of the big casinos uh, where they have a good steakhouse, and I make a reservation, take one of the company rental cars and uh, drive her in, and we have a very pleasant dinner. And even at the age of 13, she wore a neat, like a black dress. And at the age of 13, she did not look like a 13-year-old in a black dress, and she had makeup on. She could have passed for somebody's wife, I swear to God, knowing that, and um, not particularly worrying about things and being a rambling gambling guy at the end of dinner i say want to shoot some craps <laughs> i mean i'm like dying to shoot some crap <laughs> and she goes sure we go down to the crap table and, and here's the end of the story they don't even card her she came into womanhood very early in life and no one questioned it and that fulfilled my obligation she was a good girl up till then and then a good girl afterwards and and uh, very easy to work with on the shoot and she accomplished her i've got a great great reference now and we accomplished our we got a star in a movie and everybody won let me say the relationship wasn't so bad that we would have a couple lunches here and then and then we did two more projects together one in a meaningful way doppelganger which was she was the lead and the second one just as a, as a personal favor to me, which you know, demonstrates that one time we were friends, 
where she signed on to do a one-day cameo on, on my film Motorama, the Joe Mignon screenplay. He wrote After Hours for Scorsese. And, and based on that, it gave me bragging rights to, to walk up to people like Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers and Martha Quinn from MTV and just look at the actors. We, everybody in Motorama is recognizable to somebody in the world. That was the idea. And it all started with, well, Drew Barrymore's doing it. What's your problem? Although something turned because when I was approached on the re-release of Children of the Corn as an anniversary disc in 2014-ish, Kayla Waddell said, instead of doing a making of or featurettes, we want to do, you know, your biography. Just hook us up with some people. So I called people like Corey Feldman and Kathy Long, who'd been in my movies, that I could get on the phone. And I reached out to Drew Barrymore and, and I asked her agent and her manager if she would, you know, let us bring a camera crew over for 20 minutes and just say a couple words, did three movies. She said, no, whatever friendship there used to be, that's long gone, obviously. <laughs> but that's life. And and there it is. I'm just telling my story. How was the film received when it came out? We literally had bookings in theaters, literally, on the weekend that Bestron crashed. They were crashing to the point where, and you can't make this stuff up, they had prints that were ordered, that the lab did make, but that nobody at Vestron followed through with the delivery order to move it from the lab to the theater. The company went out of business that week. So how to do theatrically? We didn't really release. It was a release that at one point, like around a Wednesday, got aborted, but yet the word didn't get out to everybody, so it kind of burped. Ads that were paid for on television, weren't. they didn't deliver the copy to run. If they just simply followed through, we had a shot. I think it's a good movie. I think it's Stan. Uh, Richard Masseur does a, does a spin that's awesome. Susan Terrell's turn is awesome. When they have to voyeur in to, to look inside the, um, the room and see two adults fornicating. We got real professional fornicators. They're well known in that community. I mean, I, I cast stars everywhere. I was right about Anthony Rapp. He went on to greatness. Anders Jones, he, he was like a pepperoni or a meatball or something in um, a nightmare movie on a pizza. He's got a great band, Mr. Uh, Jones in the previous, and a nice talk show up in Seattle. Yeah, I, I love the movie. I love everything about it. I think we did everything right. I think the score is perfect. <laughs> and Matt Brewer, he is funny. I mean, the guy just drips comedy. He would constantly get me, and he'd get me every time that he was going to, what, what do they say, chew the scenery? He'd never use those words. He'd do things like, I never saw it, but you could just imagine, whisper, 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 Borchers is on the set, whisper, 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 whisper. And so, you know, I, I just walk straight up to the camera, look, and there they are in a rehearsal. And Matt Brewer's got like a big red clown nose on his face. And, and now they're, they're going and going, okay, ready for picture, ready for picture. And he's still got them around. And they're going to keep it on there until I say something. <laughs> you can't do it with the clown nose on his face. And then, and then Matt like will pull it off and say, oh, you're ruining all the fun. And another day you'll walk on the set and he's got like a size 36 shoe on, you know, <laughs> constantly clowning around. Literally. I heard they're going to remake Max Headroom. I'm happy to hear that. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I know he's not necessarily underrated, but it feels like he's underused. It's a big world. And right now, the gatekeeping is more narrow than it is. It's like the, the bigger the things behind the gate, the smaller the gate is to get through. You know, if you're Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy, well, good for you. But if you're not, 
I believe that companies like Netflix are making so many movies that are not being well received by the audience. And, and what I mean by that is where you take a movie like Due Date or um, the other guys that are 10 years old when they drop on Netflix, they drop in the top 10. And then you look at movies that Netflix just spent 30 or $40 million on and they don't drop in the top 10. That's the point I'm trying to make about likability. There's movies that people really like, and sometimes they're older movies, but they really like them. Netflix doesn't seem to know how to make movies that people really like on any kind of consistent basis at all. Their success rate just proves the theory that even a broken clock is right twice a day. And and that's their their success rate as far as this producer is concerned. And, And I believe that this is the reason why. I believe that no longer do you go into a studio like Warner Brothers and sit in front of somebody like Alan Horn and explain to him why you're passionate about this and why people are going to feel, and this is the emotion that you're going to create with the audience. And this is the experience that's going to happen inside the theater. I think now somebody like, um, and I'm just making this up. I think now somebody like Kevin Hart Hart walks in with a director like Antoine Fuqua and and says, uh, we'll get a writer and this is what we want to do. And, And I think then Netflix says, if Kevin Hart and Antoine Fuqua want to do something, let's do it. I think that's removed that part of really thinking through the passion of the appeal to the audience. And that isn't at the soul of the pitch anymore. The, 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 the pitch is the gettability of name actors that you would otherwise be waiting 36 months for because that's how much money we pumped into the production pipeline that we were ourselves are creating such a demand for name actors and the supply is so limited that we ourselves are making ourselves wait three years for their own availability. And that business model isn't going to create a lot of good product. And God bless Shonda Rhimes for making the good things she does and Ryan Murphy for making the good things he does. But people that just have a good thing to make that used to be able to get it made at a studio every once in a while don't have a prayer anymore. Because the younger pups at the management companies and at these production companies that have mega deals at the studio, at the, at the streamers, they're all trained like MBAs to say, uh, what, what did you do last year? Well, I've been developing this for five years. You know, we put craft into it. It's ready now. Oh, well, you know, so it's five years old. No, it's <laughs> been working on it for five <laughs> and, and that's why my faith for films as, as I grew up to see them, they're all coming from outside the United States. I, I have the privilege being a member of the Academy to watch all the foreign films that get submitted, one from every country. They're great. I mean, what... What a breath of fresh air to watch movies. And when we made a movie like Far From Home, that's what we were thinking. We weren't thinking like, how can we blow up a head bigger or make something more grotesque or spill more blood? We were thinking, how can we tell a story? It started a story of a kid who watched not only too much television, but so much television. He really could not differentiate reality anymore. That was the thesis of, of the inaugural script to... A girl who is loath to spend the summer with her divorced parent just wants to read this book and, and then meets these two kind of cute boys. <laughs> Maybe the summer will pick up again. It just so happens one of them looks like he'll kill you, and the other one is going to kill you. <laughs> it's not always the way. But we did everything right. It was her first screen kiss. And, and like I say, if the, if the company did not go bankrupt, that movie would have made it a good handsome profit for everybody 
it just ended up getting ignored by uh, the people who bought Vestron. I think today it's actually inside the library at Lionsgate, and I don't believe anybody there knows it. But hopefully it'll be on my YouTube channel one day. We can hope. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would love for more people to see this movie. Me too. It's a good one. Um, I'll be posting my vampire movie, Vamp, pretty soon. I've already got Children of the Corn up there and Little Witches and Angel. I've got more than a dozen of my movies. It's a fun channel. Mr. Porchers, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. are back and we are talking about far from home and you know i mentioned a little bit about erotic thrillers and again i think erotic thrillers are something that people don't necessarily remember from back in the day i mean we were we're in the middle of this right here 1989 this is prime time for erotic thrillers so even I wouldn't say that this is necessarily an erotic thriller. It has edges of that. There is some eroticism going on here. Jagged Edge, 1985. I know that's not the first one, but that's 85. We've got Fatal Attraction, 87. We've got Basic Instinct, 92. Indecent Proposal, 93. And then after that, we start getting... The hilarious ones. I was working at Blockbuster around this time, and you would get these hilarious erotic thrillers where it was basic attraction and just like all of these. And I, I know there's that parody film as well, like Fatal Instinct, I think is the parody film, but you would literally get people just mixing and matching this whole group of words, just trying to come up with that next erotic thriller. And you would get every single week, you know, I talked about the hot single shelves at, at Blockbuster and every week you would get like, okay, here's the new Edward James almost film. Here's the new, you know, Jeff Speakman film. Here's your new, you know, just like you had these guys that were like the kings of the hot singles. And eventually they'd get replaced by like Dean Kane or Casper Van Dien, these guys, but, or of course, you know, the one of the kings, Nicolas Cage, and then also the, the now new heir apparent Bruce Willis. But like back in the day, like this was the thing, like people would come in and they'd be like, Oh, a new movie. What is this? This looks amazing. And yes, it is very teasing of there's going to be sex in this. And so these things were flying off the shelves. And I can swear to that being one of the guys that rented these movies, but this is, you know, 89. I don't remember when. I think Sliver might have helped put a nail in the coffin of those. Cause I think that and Jade, probably. Yeah, I think yeah. those. Oh, yeah. my God, those were terrible. <laughs> Showgirls was probably one of the last things. That was like the whole bidding war. I mean, I mentioned Jagged Edge. That was Esther Haas in his prime, and Showgirls is Esther Haas at his decline. And he had that short run there, and he was kind of the, the king of erotic thrillers. I love erotic thrillers, and I, I have a whole multiple shelves of them behind me here. And I really loved all 
the definitely the straight the cable ones that happened between all those big ones you mentioned. Like I like I love Andrew Stevens a lot. And was it the night games? Movies or Night Eyes, sir. The Night Eyes movies are great. With Ryan is obsessed with these films. He is like he's been talking about them for decades. He loves like the Shannon Tweed, and when him and Shannon Tweed get together, like I really love. Oh gosh, what's it called? Illicit Dreams. Illicit Dreams is amazing. Again, one of those titles where like you're not going to remember the names of. Like, I'm obsessed with them, and I never know the names. I just have to look at it. But Illicit Dreams is they have a steamy affair in their dreams, and it feels very proto like. Mulholland Drive or something like that, where it's like, and then they wake up in separate, they wake up in separate beds and be like, did we just do that? Was that a dream? But then like they bring a key from the dream into reality, very much like Mulholland Drive. So maybe David Lynch ripped it off. Big Shannon Worry fan. Like she's really good in Mirror Images where she plays twins. That's a really good one. Oh, back to Andrew Stevens. He casts his dog in many of them. Butch Stevens, who is actually in some of the credits, will be in like a Night Eyes movie or Night Eyes 2. And he'll clearly he just had his because he produced these movies, too. And I think he just had his dog around. He's like, let's get Butch in the movie. Let's there's a good scene. I think it's maybe in the first one where he has Butch jump up and grab an orange off an orange tree. And it was it's very thrilling. Um, <laughs> but they get so they get kind of tied up and trying to be like basic instinct they're always about like i want to have sex with this lady but is she gonna kill me i'm the detective is this wrong but i feel they get really good and really fascinating in the early aughts when the playboy channel made so many of them and they're they're under eros entertainment it was the name of the company and i have about 60 of them and they are amazing and they kind of feel like almost like Douglas Sirk movies. They're like high melodrama, but in this erotic thriller, sometimes they're not even a thriller. They almost feel like a romance novel. Monique Parent is in a lot of them. She's incredible. It's just, it's just like the whole genre, like from going where it started in the eighties all the way. And then it died completely because then softcore was killed. Once we can see the most graphic, anything on our phones, which is too bad. Sad when they try to bring it back now, I don't like like 50 shades of gray. I don't like, just like these don't have the same the three they don't get the thriller right they don't just does it's not fun anymore but it was like a good genre that i feel it still hasn't gotten the respect it deserves i feel the erotic thriller like nerds have obsessed over horror and bought up all the vhs tapes of that and action certainly now and like even like weird indie comedies, but I feel erotic thrillers, maybe because it's a shame thing or people have memories of masturbating it on to Cinemax back in the day. So they feel weird, like buying it even off of eBay because they're really easy to find. If you're into it, then it's a whole world. Like once I got on it, that's like where all my money went for years and years was collecting VHS tapes of erotic thrillers. Well, before we started recording, you mentioned Justin Bozung, my former co-host and recent star of one of your episodes, and he loved erotic thrillers, talked about writing a book about them because he knows, was it Dan Golden, I think it was, who was involved with Drip to Kill, which we covered that on the podcast. Gosh, one of our very first episodes. So I was, you know, pretty much girding my loins for more <laughs> of these erotic thrillers. It just kind of never arrived. But, you know, I'm surprised no one has done an erotic thriller podcast or book or something to really give this. I know, like, even the guys at We Hate Movies were doing a series that they were calling A Side Order of Sleaze, and they were covering some of these. But that's, I think they've done five over 10 years. People get burnt out on it. I think what I've been working on in a manual 
Pascal exploitation book for 10 years. And people will often cover like the, the 70s stuff. But I think once you get into that like cable cheaper stuff, I think a lot of people think they're crap or a lot of people burn out and think they're the same. It's just not a lot of plot. It's just people having sex. I disagree. I think there's a lot of merit in all of in all of them. <laughs> and so I think that like these movies are, are long overdue for someone to write a great book or do a, a really intense podcast where they go through not just the hits, but like the deep cuts, the ones you've never heard of, because there's literally hundreds of them. It's a lot. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned Crimes of Passion. I mean, that one, talk about Spankable. That was like my thing. You know, Kathleen Turner was just the hottest thing in the world to me between War, not War of the Roses. I like that's okay, but between Body Heat and then her great role in, in Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. But then she was just incredible. What was her name? China Blue inside Crimes of Passion is an insane movie. Oh, it's so good. I love that movie. And then you even mentioned another one, Wild Orchid. And of course, Wild Orchid 2, Two Shades of Blue. I mean, there are so many of these. Yeah, it's, I, I, I agree with you because there are some very interesting pit stops along the way. And I would say it's, you know, another one from Ken Russell, Whore, I think was would fit right into that as well. And it was it was always exciting in that era of the height of erotic thriller when a really big director would like get was able to get the budget to do something like Crimes of Passion, which just looks amazing. You know, does Eyes Wide Shut kind of well the pro- way into well the this? problem with that is it's about a guy trying to get laid and he can't so there it's like it really is the it's about impotence it's the opposite of an erotic thrill but maybe that's what makes it like so yeah i feel that eyes wet shut is more like a blake edwards film to me that's like 10 it's like this guy who wants to cheat on his wife he wants to leave his house and he just gets a caught up in a bunch of trouble you know what eyes wet shut totally a rip off of 10 stanley kubrick must have been a fan I would love to see a scene in that movie where Tom Cruise has to explain himself on the phone while on Novocaine. It's time to remake both movies as one movie. Let's do Eyes Wide 10. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, not to promote another podca- film podcaster here, but have either of you listened to Karina Longworth's erotic 80s series uh, for the You Must Remember This podcast? She In that, she talked about Two Moon Junction and Wild Orchid. I've written to her a few times. We did an episode about one of Polly Platt's films, a film she wrote called Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, uh, that was traumatizing for Brian. But maybe, and I say that as a trigger warning for anyone who always seeks it out, but it's one of the films, one of the few films she wrote. And so I wrote, and she had done a Polly Platt thing. So I'd, I've written to her a few times to ask her questions um, and to ask her to be on our podcast, but she's she's flatly refused yeah same here i don't know if what she said which what she said to me when i wrote to her was just like i don't i really don't like to speak extemporaneously i like to read from a script which i understand my point is i i wrote to her about i was like hey you're doing erotic 80s have you considered doing far from home she's like what i've never heard it. i mean the dog movie <laughs> so what's the wait so fly away home is the duck one what's the dog one that's that's uh homeward bound <laughs> homeward bound uh Colon, Far From Home. Far From Home definitely makes this movie seem like it's going to... That's why I thought I came in thinking it was going to be like a coming-of-age family movie. Far, Far From Home does not is not a good description of what this movie actually is. I don't know what a better title would be, but Far From Home, I think, is maybe not the best title. 
Trailer Park Killers. See, I would have watched, I would have seen the movie then. If that was what it was called, I would have sought it out. Or I would have, when it came across my radar, I would have locked in on a Trailer Park Killers. Two Moon Conjunction Junction. Yeah, Far From Home really doesn't tell you, you know, even if they just called it Stranded, something like that, that gave you a little bit more to it. Some little more menacing. Far From Home is just sort of like, oh, I'm just away from home. I'm going to date. I'm far from home. Okay, well, now we know. This is great. I love it. This is what I wanted. I got a reflection of the film. Now I know why it failed. It was the, <laughs> it was the title. It, and Batman. Man, well, like, Summer of 89 was one of the biggest summers ever for movies. Like, so you and UHF both, like, lost out to, was it Lethal Weapon 2 and License to Kill and, yeah, Batman. And, like, that's, that 89 was a good big summer. Ghostbusters 2? Maybe. Though I thought that was wanted... Christmas time, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, the thing that people nowadays forget too, and I know that this isn't you, but they forget how long movies lasted in the theater. So, like, even if Ghostbusters Two was a Christmas release, Batman would probably have still been in the theater and still because, made a lot of money. Yeah, it, it, we're <laughs> almost back to that point right now because of COVID. Like, I could still see. Uh, Top Gun 2 at the movie theater if I wanted to. It's really Try bizarre. Try and see 3,000 Years of Longing and you will come up short. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those you gotta see it opening weekend or you're done for. Yeah. Alright, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Keep away from you. You know, what? I wonder why I'm like that. Like what? I'm never thinking about anybody except myself. Well, you don't think I'd go without you? You mean that, Stan? Absolutely. You satisfied? Oh, Stan, I don't care for nothing now. Nothing in the world. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind oh, of a... It takes one to catch one. Listen to me. I'm no good. I never pretended to be. But I love you. I'm a hustler. I've always been one, but I love you. I may be the thief of the world, but with you, I've always been on the level.
That's right. Noir Vember continues next week with a look at Nightmare Alley. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Brian and Andres. So, guys, what is up with the World is Wrong podcast? Yeah, so Brian and I have a podcast called The World is Wrong. It's an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. So uh, like this season, we started, we kicked off the the first episode of this first season our, of our third season with Tough Guys Don't Dance with your uh, former co-host, Justin Bozung. And I don't know what we'll, where we'll be at by November. Maybe we'll be at Southland Tales by then or Hell's a Poppin'. Great movies, both of them, especially Hell's a Poppin'. My goodness. We've kind of like held back the first two seasons, and I feel like for some reason... Yeah, we held back with Brown Bunny and Mordecai and Nothing But Trouble. We didn't hold back. But like the third season, I feel we're really doing the ones that we were like so excited, but we're like, we're save it. We got to save it. We got to save it. And Hell's a Poppin' was one that Andres had never seen. And it was so exciting when he came back from that, being like, oh my God, that movie. I'm obsessed with that movie. I think it's maybe... One of the best comedies of all time, maybe the best comedy of all time. And and we and like on our show, we talk about movies that people hate and we think are actually good. But that one kind of falls in the category of why the fuck isn't Criterion putting that? Why can you only why has this never been a real home video release of Hell's a Poppin? Like Steven Spielberg's a fan. That's what inspired 1941. Like Joe Dante's a fan. That's what inspired Gremlins 2. Why can't does nobody care about this movie? Even though it came out around the same time as like Citizen Kane and other great films, like this is to be up there with that. And then we also do Andres pick two Jakes, which we're doing. And I always assumed that was a huge piece of shit and never watched it. And it's great. <laughs> it's not Chinatown, but continues that story. And that is a world that I wish that we had. I wish we had five Chinatown movies. Jake gets. I wish Jake gets had a whole like he got to be the thin man or he got to be, you know, a character who was who had multiple films. Uh, but I should also say that Brian has another podcast, a film podcast called The Director's Wall with his co-host AJ Gonzalez. And they cover a uh, director's full filmography over the course of each season. So their first one was M. Night Shyamalan. They're currently in the middle of Francis Ford Coppola. I was recently a guest on the episode about The Rainmaker, which if you haven't seen it, it's I think we agreed one of the greater Coppola films. Let's not say where we put it on our list, but Brian, t- tell them a little bit about uh, the director's wall. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that for about eight years and we are obsessively going through every film by the director and with stuff they wrote. There's stuff like we're about to do for Coppola Supernova because he was the, the editor of Supernova, the Walter Hill sci-fi sexy Spader movie. And so we are pretty thorough. We make sure we cover everything. And so when we did Apocalypse Now, we did every version, including the kind of bootleg. uh, Yeah, the five-hour work print. Which is my preferred version, in my opinion, because it feels more like a Herzog film. Uh, So it's it's got like all that great Tamita music and stuff. So yeah, check that out. And Andras has another podcast. He's taking a little bit of break on it, but it's called The Radio 8-Ball Show. Uh, where you've had you've done what 700 episodes of that like you're you've been doing that well it was a live show and yeah it's a musical divination show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and then interpreting them like musical tarot cards and we've had guests like john c Riley and patricia arquette and weird al yankovic and seth green amazing people and all of the songs all the answers are performed 
by singer-songwriters performing their own music, and we've had some great singer-songwriters on the show. You can find it all at Radio8Ball.com. And Brian has another... No, we're not going to... It wouldn't be funny, Mike, if we just kept doing this. And Brian has another... No. So if I send it to you, I have a website where people can find out about all my films and music and other things that I've done. You know, if you were one of those people 30 years ago, coming of age, watching this film, feeling yourself... Maybe you want to know what I sing, what I sound like when I sing. Okay. Thank you. Check it out. Previouslyyours.com. Uh, and, and Mike, God damn it. Thank you for just, when it, you really inspire me. The amount of work, the fact you read the screenplay for this film, the work, the preparation you put in is really, it should be an inspiration to every other film podcaster. And I mean this as a dig at so many film podcasters who do not put in even the basic amount of work. Listen to what this guy does, people. This is the bar. This is the bar. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, well, wait, what is this? It seems like I got an email from you, Andres, from the future. All right. Uh, like Jerry Springer, we'll let you have some final thoughts here on the Far From Home podcast right after I beg our listeners to please support the Projection Booth via Patreon at patreon.com slash projection booth and or leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts at. So, all right, Andres, uh, let's hear what you have to say. Hey, Mike, since we spoke about Far From Home, I've been thinking about Tommy Lee's note that he wanted the character Jimmy to be Jim Morrison and how young and sincere I was in those days, and how I took Tommy's note to heart, and how doing so led me to return back to L.A. and tell my agents that I was more committed to my band, the previous, than to my acting, and how that pretty much scuttled my film career and led to a life, well, which is this one, uh, in which one of the things I attempted to do was some kind of I don't know, Morrisonian revolution through music, which led to songs like Hometown Boy Made Bad, which Don Borchers included in his movie Voodoo. And I was hoping that you'd include this and the link to the YouTube page where people can check out live versions of Hometown Boy Made Bad and a song called Who's Gonna Make It Rain that Don Borchers put in his film Little Witches. Interestingly, I recorded or we recorded these songs at a club called Smalls, which uh, is no longer there. I mean, the, the place is there, but it's no longer called Smalls. And it's right across from the Paramount Studios lot. And uh, in the mid 90s, when we recorded this, it was right after Madonna took a bunch of pictures there to promote her sex book. So there's your end of the millennium snapshot. Make of it what you will. It's after midnight, we're in Los Angeles. And that means... That means that if, uh, that if you are driving around tonight after the show, and you tune your station to your radio to 90.7, you'll hear about how the world's really much worse than you think. And that's what this song's about. Tis of thee sure looks like Germany 1933. Prepared for genocide, shrouded in foolish pride from every mountainside.
Turn. 
Guess it was all just a passing fact.